It's Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. I'm Gardner Holtz, and now we get to dive into a special interview with researcher Chris Graves on the Salem Witch Trials, Legends, and more. It is time, and we're going to go straight, straight into the mind meld with Chris Graves. He's joining us on the program now, and he is, I like the avatar image, Chris. That's awesome. Chris has the picture of the the Taunton, is it the Taunton Triangle? What do they call that, Chris? Well, uh, guard, uh, yeah, it's the Bridgewater Triangle, and Right now, my computer is telling me I. The reason why my my camera is not hooked up right now is I have to restart it. Oh, okay. So, and which would you? It couldn't be which, at the worst moment. <laughs> well, no, I actually was watching uh, somebody else just a little while ago, and they had to restart their their computer or something like that. Do you want to restart it, or do you want to go voice? Your your preference. I'm oh, cool. I can do voice. Yeah, we have the articles and everything. Yeah, I didn't want to miss this for the world. Believe ah, me. Oh, great, man. And it is kind of cool because I want to I want to put you up a little bit bigger in the screen. Because I want to see you talk and see that thing vibrate like something from yeah. a sci-fi movie. There you yeah, go. There you go. Yeah, that's awesome. Halloween. Yeah, it's like something from a video game. Chris Graves is awesome. I want to show you. Uh, Chris, I'm going to put myself in the image real quick okay. uh, because I want to show everybody your Rumble page. Okay, oh, so now we're going to go back and show Chris's Rumble page, Digging with Chris Graves. Sign up over there, everybody. Chris has so many angles, so many different types of things that he covers. And, of course, there is his handsome mug with the glasses and the beard and the hat. And he's looking cool, along with uh, the great Don Jeffries. Don, boy, uh, you know, I don't know, Chris, if you got to see Don's chat with uh, David Beto about um, FDR from Friday. Oh, I was in there. Yeah, I was, I was handing out. I, yeah, Peter Sikosh was really excited, too, because he's Don's uh, better researcher, in my opinion, and he knows all about the FDR stuff, so that was oh. a big deal for Peter. Oh, yeah, the criminal mind of FDR, and, you know, <laughs> if you if you read some of, uh, some of um, Amity Schley's stuff, the opening of her book, The Forgotten Man, about FDR and how what a master he became at gaming the system and using the carrot and stick approach of showering yeah. funds on special interests, uh, but promising that they would get the funds, but waiting to give it to them until they gave him political support. Then they'd get the money. This vast expansion of the welfare game, you know, um, right. that's excellent. But it opens with guys on a train talking about how Stalin was making the trains run on time and how much they admired Stalin. Everybody, virtually everybody in the Roosevelt administration knew, including Stalin, that I mean, including Roosevelt, that Stalin was a bloodthirsty madman. Oh, and yeah. yet they they adored the guy. Just yep. just absolutely. I mean, talk about a, and, and that sort of perversion. You know, Chris, it's weird because we think about these historical figures and we think about the fact that they could actually associate 
and distance that reality. Yeah. When I mean meeting and smoking cigars with Winston Churchill, knowing what 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 Winston Churchill had already been responsible for doing and knowing that you had secretly been in touch with Churchill to say, I will. And literally, I'm 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 quoting verbatim. I will do anything I can to get the United States into the war after Roosevelt had run as a peace candidate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I just, it, it's my, it is just, and so, I mean, you know, we see these people on television. Sometimes we meet these weird culprits in our lives who are pathological or sociological or so narcissistic. You're just like, well, I'm going to get away from that guy. And maybe you hear something about them later where they did something stupid in their life or their business, or maybe yeah. something even worse. Right. But this is, on a, yeah, yeah this is, this is systematized on such a broad scale through the political machine. That it, it becomes almost like it, it's, you know, it's like you're inculcated to just expect it. These are ghouls. They're monstrous it's, things. It, it's the acceptable uh, reality. Yeah, yeah, it, it sure is. Actually, and I didn't mean that to be a uh, to be a segue, to be a segue, uh, <laughs> but I wanna I wanna show the audience uh, a little bit of something that I sent over to you. Yeah, uh, yeah, and it describes. What is going to be sort of our uh, the starting subject for us tonight, which I think people will really enjoy, and it's about the witch trials. Now, as as you know, Chris, and I've mentioned this on the show before, um, and it's funny that when I was showing that that witch down in Pennsylvania, um, they had the picture of my friends Kelly Owen and Bob Ford, because Kelly Owen and Bob Ford, they're also in the Horror Writers Association, and they know they're also friends with both of the people who wrote this book about the witch hunts. Right. Um, and well, one of them's passed away, my friend Rocky Wood. So just to let everybody know, you know, my last last name is Goldsmith. It's not Jewish, it's English and Irish. The Goldsmiths came over, I don't know when, um, but my middle name is Gardner, and that's from the Gardner family. There was this guy, Richard Gardner, who came over, a man, Richard Gardner, who came over on the Mayflower, signed the Mayflower Compact. And the Gardner family, along with four other families, uh, went north from Plymouth Plantation because Plymouth Plantation, and Chris, you're probably aware of this, they actually would expel people who were not strict enough Calvinists. That's right. Yeah, and and so whether that was the reason or they just thought it was a good opportunity to find land on the coastline where they could start fishing and doing things like that, I don't know. But the Gardner family helped found Salem, and yeah. they were one of the founding families there. So uh, that's Isabella Stewart Gardner married into that family. That's where you get the Gardner Museum in in Boston. And uh, we talked to Toby Leary. I didn't even I was not even aware until I heard it like the second time. They have a Gardner. Uh, room or something chamber in the state house uh, in Massachusetts. So your so, family must have settled Gardner Mass too. Yeah, yeah, it's Gardner Mass where they do a lot of the uh, furniture yeah. stuff. Yeah, 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 like Winchenden furniture and everything. Great furniture. Yeah, exactly, dude. Exactly. And I don't know what river they were using for the mills. Uh, be interested to find out the history of that. It's a, it's a very pretty area too. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Especially nowadays with the foliage and everything, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know where I would love to go is out on the Mohawk Trail. Yeah, you know, heading heading west towards Tanglewood. Wow, man, so nice. And, and by years, the way, years prior, I would drive up to Bangor, you know, just to see uh, Mr. Stephen King's uh, mansion there. And oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Had all the foliage of ninety five, Route ninety five there. Oh man, I love I love that whole route. In fact, it's funny you should bring it up because right here, that's a picture of Rocky. 
And that's Stephen King. Rocky yep. and Stephen were very good friends. He did a bunch of nonfiction publications about Stephen King's stuff. Wow. And uh, so Rocky has a, has a great, great, was a great friend with Stephen King. And Rocky is a libertarian, yeah. was a libertarian from Australia. And yet he was super close friends with Stephen King. Another pro-liberty guy is the editor of Cemetery Dance Magazine, Richard Chismar. And yeah. he and Stephen King have been friends for a long, long time. And so, you know, uh, I often have a lot of mixed feelings about what Stephen King might say here or there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I know his son. Yeah. And I know his son, Joe. And, you know, they're nice guys. They're, they're, so you know, they're, Joe Hill personally. Oh, yeah. 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 I gave, uh, last time I saw Joe, I gave him a copy of Genesis of the Daleks in the <laughs> Barnes and Noble in Nashua. Yeah. Uh, he was there speaking and stuff like that. We, we're, we're acquainted. We're not like super friendly. He lives out on the seacoast of New Hampshire. Yeah. And, um, and ph phenomenal writer. Just, you know, great, great writing. But again, left of center, left wing. But we, you know, we have some commonalities and, and they're nice guys, you know, they're nice people. Um, and uh, Rocky was just an amazing dude. And as I mentioned, uh, he and my friend Lisa Morton wrote this book on the witch hunts. And so that's sort of our topic, because it is weird to have a family tied to these things. Uh, I've just heard that in Massachusetts now there's an ex post facto attempt to try to um, clear the names Yes. of the people who have been tried. So yeah. we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about the witch, witch trials and the witch hunts. And we'll start it off with uh, this image. There's Stephen King and Rocky again. Uh, this is Witch Hunts, A Graphic History of the Burning Times by Rocky Wood. Rest in peace, Rocky. He had, he had uh, folks who are unaware he got Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and he was aware of it. And he made very, very smart investments to allow him. He was the head of the Horror Writers Association, president for many years, was a terrific guy. I've got video of us out on the Brighton Pier having a great time watching the seagulls. I got a photograph of him with seagull behind him over the ocean, over the British, uh, the English Channel. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it's it's really weird. He's gone, but he was such a peaceful, kind, fun guy. And he knew that he was going to start to degenerate. So he invested in things Early on, got a tablet, uh, got um, a wheelchair and all the things that he would need. His son was there to back him up. And he continued to travel to the official horror writers events, continued to do things. And as I mentioned to you, Chris, the last time I saw Rocky, he was so devastated by ALS. He was still av available to chat at a horror writers convention. And um, we had a great chat. We took a picture giving a fellow friend of ours the finger. <laughs> and uh, Rocky raised his finger and gave the guy the finger. It was just a joke. Um, and uh, and the last thing he wrote to me was, I love you. Oh, and that was really, really something. He was a, he was an amazing, amazing. What a great, great guy. And wow. uh, I knew I, you know, I knew I was saying goodbye. Uh, and, but, rest you in know, peace. Yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace. And but Rocky coming from a libertarian standpoint, Lisa Morton, the co-writer on it and Greg Chapman, just to to uh, I'll see if I can enlarge this for everybody here. Uh, sorry. Um, let me just do this. See if I can make it bigger. Um, Greg Chapman is another Aussie who did the artwork and the artwork is really, really cool in this book. It won the Bram Stoker Award in 2012 for yeah. superior achievement in graphic novel. Yeah. And uh, it's not really a novel. It's it's nonfiction. And what's really interesting about it is, as I found out, um, there's a lot more to just the witch trials than Salem. So, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit, because you've got even more on this Halloween that you can tell us about the witch trials. But what's your angle as 
we open it up for the viewers at Rockfin Rumble or after the fact or or Twitter. Well, I uh, I've been to Gallows Hill. I'm I'm not sure if you if you've ever been there. It's uh, very haunting. I have driven by it, but we never got out of the car. Yeah, we got out of the car, and uh, they have some memorials to the the victims there. Uh, whether you believe they were actually possessed by which, or whether you believe they're witches or not, I, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a couple of theories um, that have gone around over the years uh, in terms of what may have caused uh, mass hysteria, including uh, even bread and fungus on bread. Yeah, they thought it was like maybe yeast psychosis, yeast poisoning, and things like that, and. Uh, you know, uh, it, it is very strange because they're there. This happened to so many people. They couldn't understand why so many people would would dive into such delusions. Exactly. And, you know, they would see what we would think of as the modern day witch, like on broomsticks. And they'd see demons and things like that. It's uh, Chris. It's almost as if they had a government narrative about some deadly thing that would destroy all of their towns. And they just had to act in unison and take care of it. You know what I'm saying, man? I do. And there's a correlation that I think off the air, you and I have talked about uh, where you actually dove into it, where they would, you know, accuse people of being witches and then even werewolves, which we'll get to in a little bit in, uh, even in Europe. Um, where they would use that as an excuse just to take someone's land. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And in fact, I'll go right over to it and show the cover again uh, if people get the opportunity to check this out. In the research, and Rocky informed me of this, I actually did an interview with Rocky and Lisa. Uh, Rocky's voice is a little bit, uh, his breathing is a little funky, so his voice is a little bit, a little bit odd in it. But I think it's still over at my Liberty Conspiracy uh, audios on Podomatic. And uh, he and Lisa explained that as they started to do the research for the Witch Hunt's graphic nonfiction book, uh, and that's what it is, it's nonfiction, but it's all artwork and so on. Um, what they discovered was that Salem was not an isolated place. There, this happened all over the place, all yeah. around the world. And what they found was it was political forces that were they, they levered off of this spiritual fear and religious fear and once one person in a political area found out about what somebody else was doing, they used it as a way to target people and make them give up their land. So yeah. it was a way to acquire property. It was a way, a way to knock out people who had very valuable property. And that's, he said, that's what really made it spread because political forces realized it was a valuable weapon to use against people to accuse them of witchcraft and either they would be found guilty or they would, their reputation would be so bad that they would have to leave and then they would sell their land at a rock bottom price. Very cheap. Yeah. And yeah. a very, very uh, cheap price that they were a hundred percent ripped off on. And yeah. And they, they looked into the, the, the claims about, you know, could it have been, you know, some sort of uh, psychosis brought on by by yeast in the bread, that sort of thing. And they said, you know, no, not not that case. Uh, it was it was right. a way and they would even pay off people yeah. to claim, you know, some of the So like the story out of out of uh, out of Salem, younger people making the claims as we see in the play, you know, and they say, oh, and the crucible and that sort of thing was it. Yeah, it was the crucible. Right. Yeah. Um, the crucible. Yeah. yeah. And um, 
and they, they would pay people off. They'd be like, you know, here's a person in a bad state. I'll give them some money. You say you saw this. You, you just keep sticking with it. And they were all set. And it happened over and over again. And, and, boom, uh, and boom, you have your corroboration right there. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was made up corroboration. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In some cases, you'd get people who would speak up because they had been jilted by someone or something. It was just an, such an easy weapon, you know, yeah. spreading the pathogen of witchcraft all around the place, happening in the 1600s when, of course, you know, word was word of mouth, yeah. and it was very easy to quietly, you know, not leave a paper trail. You just make sure you supported somebody, you know. And money talks, and you know what walks, right? Yeah, big time, big time. So tell us a little more about your angle as you started to look into the witch trials. You got so much fascinating stuff that you sent my way, and I'll click on anything you might want me to bring up. Yeah, I actually have a, um, a history dot com uh, article link about um, before America had witch trials, Europe had werewolf trials. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if you see that or not. Um, yeah, I'll go over to it here. And show it on the screen, and here we go. Yes, yeah, so I was I was doing research for a uh, a werewolf movie uh, a couple of years ago, and I wanted to kind of do a different take on the werewolf uh, genre. And I came across this whole thing about where there these this uh, thing I had never heard of before, where women, where it was women werewolves, and um. It was tied to this phenomenon that was uh, over in Europe uh, about 200 years before the Salem witch trials, even where witches and werewolves would be uh, kind of connected with accusations of being werewolves and witches, but they would be like together in a weird way. And they would uh, go on trial. And this is like in France and Ireland, yeah, uh, all over Europe. And it, it turned out that it was just people, mentally disabled people. Or you actually had like beggars and vagrants and things like that, you know, people, wow. uh, un under, quote unquote, under undesirables, that, that kind of thing. And they would be accused of mutilating and eating children, even. Oh, oh, geez. There were probably some guilty parties like pedophiles and actual killers that were being labeled this thing, too, like a werewolf and, and such. But for the most part, it was kind of mirrors the Salem thing where most likely they were not witches. And that's my opinion. I mean, you know, it's like so it's it's wild to think now. And, you know, we have our lycanthropy legend, this yeah. idea of you get bitten by a werewolf. And then, uh, you know, as the uh, the moon, as the, the moon comes up, then, yeah, that sort of thing. You go into that phase. Um, um, who is it? Robert McCammon's got a great novel called the wolf's hour where oh, in yeah. world war two, the guy's a spy in Europe gets bitten by a werewolf and starts to turn into a werewolf. And then as he's a werewolf, he ages at a rapid rate compared to what he would normally age as a human being. Yeah. And when he comes out of it, he's really exhausted and so on, but it's, it's a fascinating, it's a great, great story around the time that he came out with uh, they, they live or they thirst, they thirst. I'm thinking of the movie. they thirst. And yeah. yeah. So, and it's interesting because on this piece, you know, we have here right here, um, uh, uh, Lycaon, Lycaon transforms into a wolf, which is where we get lycanthropy in Greek mythology. 
Yeah. Lycaon, king of Arcadia, tested Zeus by serving him the roasted flesh of his son, Nictimus, in order to see whether Zeus was truly omniscient. Well, that was a big mistake in a couple <laughs> ways, wasn't it? Yeah, just a and, little. Yeah, and Chris, if, if you don't mind, Chris Graves is our guest, folks. I want to read the opening of this. Very interesting opening here. Some 200 years before the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts courts in Europe were convicting men and some women of transforming into werewolves and mutilating and eating children. Now, they don't really touch upon the witch uh, contingent or the the witch thing, but a lot mm. of these cases weren't just werewolves. They were werewolf witch like teams. It's kind of odd. Wow. Wow. So you had this supernatural devil curse thing, but not necessarily in the tradition of the the witch as we know today or as the cult might have sung. Right. right? Exactly. Okay. Or as the Sonics might have sung, of course, about Hillary Clinton a couple decades before. Yeah, can, she's I, the witch. I can believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It, I, I think in that interview that she did for 60 Minutes where she was laughing about, uh, about Gaddafi, didn't she say, we came, we saw, I turned into a wolf, he died? <laughs> Is that what she said? Yeah, something about that. And, uh, I, and then yeah. she was like, <laughs> yeah, she cackled and then a house yeah. fell on her. And then, yeah, uh, I don't it? think we need we don't need that kind of supernatural to know that she's an evil creature. huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting because you say, as you mentioned, the punishments were sometimes as gruesome as the alleged crimes in Germany in 1589. Executioners yeah. strapped accused werewolf Peter Strump to a cartwheel removed his skin with hot pinchers and chopped off his head before burning his body at the stake. Stump's head, no pun intended, attached to a wooden pole carved into the likeness of a wolf was later displayed as a warning to others tempted to consort with the devil. Yeah, that's not a timeshare that I would sign up for. We'll return with more from the great Chris Graves here on Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Thanks for listening and find Liberty Conspiracy Live at 6 p.m. Monday through Friday on Rumble and Rockfin. You can listen live or after the fact. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases, but Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction, and its features ensure Dash is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible, and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. <laughs> 
We continue on Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live, digging into legends, lore, and mysterious crimes with guest Chris Graves. I'm Gardner Goldsmith. Thanks for tuning in. And I had no idea that the the werewolf lycanthropy legend was that that old and that well established that they had trials like the witch trials that actually preceded the witch trials until you told me. Yeah, Yeah. Chris, that's an amazing thing. And when you and I were talking about this on the phone, it blew me away because like, oh, yeah, you know, they had werewolf trials. I'm like, huh? I only only knew that because of doing research for this uh, werewolf witch uh, horror movie screenplay that I wanted to still do. And I was I was fascinated because I'm like, that isn't the basis of my werewolf screenplay. But yeah. could be the basis for another screenplay altogether, just the backstory. You know, that you could do a mini series exactly. all about that. That yeah. would be amazing. I knew you nothing know, about wow. any of this. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the werewolf trials from the papal inquisitors to the secular courts. Like they actually put people on trial like this, right? Yeah, through the uh, 15th and the 16th, 17th centuries. And they would basically kind of mirror with Salem. Like, you know, in Salem, they would literally crush people to death. And in Danvers, Danvers, Mass., where a lot of the um, a lot of the a- actual accusations of the witch trials themselves. Yeah. Out, in fact, a lot of it Danvers. wasn't. Yeah. A lot of it wasn't in Salem proper. It was outside of Salem. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, and they actually, I've been down to, they have a memorial for all of the accused in Danvers. That's even bigger than the Gallows Hill one, where there's a couple of concrete uh, stones there with, you know, like Mary Proctor and and people's names like that, you know, uh, and how they died and everything. But in Danvers, they have all the, the, the people that were, you know, thrown in the water, you know, and drowned because that was the idea if they didn't drown, then, yep, they're witches. So they were damned if they do, damned if they don't, uh, as they would say, you know. Well, how does that tie into uh, so and they, they absolutely were. It's like the Monty Python skit. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, we'll throw in the water. It's like you're going to drown and uh, you're not. There's no winning here. You know, yeah. If you drown, we knew you weren't a witch because you would have saved yourself. All now right. You, good now stuff. You're, you're dead, so it doesn't matter. So you're not going to care, I guess. Yeah, you know? you're totally cool. Now yeah. that, it's interesting because you have the werewolf stuff preceding this by 200 years. In and you've got the story in Europe, exactly. And it goes all the way to the Pope. And I'll just, I'll just mention this real quick as we start to go into the witches. And then there's another facet of it that you brought up, and I didn't know about this either. Yeah. In 1521, inquisitors appointed by the Pope presided yeah. over several trials of alleged werewolfry. Two yep. shepherds, Pierre Bougot and Michel Verdun, confessed to making a pact with the devil in exchange for food meeting with a man in black who gave them an ointment that turned them into werewolves, then attending midnight witch gatherings and hunting and eating children. Both were convicted and burned at the stake, along with a third who refused to confess. Now, I'm not sure, but I think he held his hand up. The number was 14, and his nickname was Skippy, but I'm not sure. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. You never know. But, yeah. Um, and they hung out with, uh, uh, an artist who, uh, does, uh, spirit cooking. But, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. 
So tell us, tell us a little bit about anything you want to add about the werewolf things, but then as the universal monsters might do, let's talk about the vampire hunting in new England, the vampire trials, because that also is something I didn't know, but any other stuff about the werewolf stuff that you might want to mention? Just that like the punishment seemed to be even more ghastly than what some of these uh, men and women were being accused of. I mean, mutilating and eating children is probably the worst of the worst, but they would literally like peel their skin back and really torture them pretty much to death. So, yeah, I mean, man, couldn't they just take him to a Taylor Swift concert with the governor of New Jersey? Isn't that torture enough? Or Beyonce. Yeah. any Yeah. (laughs) Something like that. You know, double bill. But, I can uh, see it now. It's like Monty Python. Fetch the comfy chair. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The uh, werewolf trials, uh, other than what we pretty much covered. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's really nothing else besides the fact that it, they were not just here because uh, there were a couple of isolated werewolf th- uh, things here, too. Yeah. That weren't yeah. so much in Salem, but, you know, around the country. But yeah, no, there was. They definitely went into the vampire accusations uh, in the 1800s, especially in Rhode Island, with probably the most famous case, woman named Mercy Brown. Mercy I, Brown. Let's check out the day. Mercy Brown thing. And I see here that uh, according to history dot com, the werewolf trials themselves continued sporadically in the 17th century in Germany. Oh yeah. Uh, but and, and in Netherlands and the eastern in Eastern Europe. But eventually they sort of uh, petered out as industrialization grew. And yet over in New England, as you say, you got Mercy Brown. I've got the the click to all that's interesting dot com. Mercy Brown's story yeah. might be, yeah, one of the history's craziest vampire incidents. So tell us about this. And and again, you know, what's weird is it's it's this sort of perverse interest that that you can't help but have. Um it's a curiosity, but these people suffered. They, you know, they 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 were killed. They were tortured. They had their land taken from them. We got 1892. Mercy Brown. Tell us a little bit about this, Chris Graves. Well, her family, um, it was during at the time when there was a big tuberculosis. Uh, I don't know. I, I hate saying pandemic, but there was a, yeah. uh, a whole bunch of tuberculosis going around. Uh, what would be the proper phrase uh, for that? That's not pandemic or pandemic or whatever, but just... Well, it depends on depends on the level, I suppose, of what was, it was. But there certainly was they had of an epidemic of of it. Yeah, epidemic. That's the word. Okay. Yeah. yeah. At play. least within the United within the United States, I don't. If it was across many many countries and it was deadly enough, they would have called it a pandemic. But if it's just in the United States, it would have been an epidemic uh, okay. and that sort of thing. But that's just you know the way that they'd done their terminology. And then, of course, who cares? Because the who's going to change it, right? So yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, they're well, yeah, and Webster's will change the definition anyway. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, no, I went to public school, so I needed that pointed out. Um, and yeah, and by the way, Mercy Brown is seen as a, a, such an example of by the statists of why you need to have lockdowns, why yeah. you need to isolate people. You person, and they still do it. They still they still cite Mercy Brown like, oh, that evil Mercy Brown. She <laughs> continued to do stuff even though she was killing people. It's like. Um, no, what are you talking about? 
He but anyway, dead. continue, was, please. Yes. She was dead and buried. That, that's yeah. the thing that people don't realize. But she suffered um, uh, uh, tuberculosis infections. And then I guess uh, other members of her family did too. Um, uh, Mary, her mother, uh, Mary Eliza, was the first to die of the disease. And then um, Mary Olive, a sister, according to her gravestone. Um, yeah, her her. Okay, in 1891, daughter Mercy and son Edwin also contracted the disease. Friends and neighbors of the family believed that one of the dead family members was a vampire, although they did not use the name and had as that they didn't use the vampire name and as a cause of Edwin's uh, illness. But this was in, in accordance to threads of contemporary folklore, which linked multiple deaths to one family to undead activity consumption no sorry go ahead no no no, go for it no well i was gonna say you know the thing about it is that tuberculosis was pretty widely known at the time frederick bastia died of tuberculosis in the 1840s you know um so it wasn't it wasn't uncommon uh this is in rhode island in the turn near the turn of the century the 1880s 1890s right yeah that's right yeah um what had happened was consumption was really poorly understood at that time and it was the subject of a lot of superstition um and i think uh the salem witch trial period was kind of under the same umbrella in a way and i think same with the european werewolf trials uh superstition played a a large role in convincing the public of a lot of this stuff um Mm -hmm. i feel like Uh, what do you think Oh, I think I think it definitely was the case. But again, you know, I think there's also this tendency that we see today with the whole pandemic lockdown mindset of the people in political authority, the people who are seen as, you know, the establishment people. Well, I've got the authority. So listen to what I say. And then they talk to other people and then they keep pushing this authoritarian sort of thing where you just can't do something unless you do it their way. This tendency for authoritarianism and telling other people how to live is especially backed up with this this uh, this sort of amorphous fear mongering that if you don't do it this way, well, you know, things are going to fall apart. Just look at this woman and they can selectively, especially back then, they would be very easy to start picking out anecdotal instances and saying, well, now, you know, this is going to apply to you and, and get people fearful. Uh, really very, very tragic. And in fact, what's interesting about this is you can see how this at the turn of the century in not the early 1900s, we had the Jacobson decision in Massachusetts about yeah. the jab, saying that, yeah, the state can compel someone to get a jab. And then that led, plus another another Supreme Court decision, that led to the um, sterilization of all sorts of women under so-called public health to remove their bad blood from the future population. Because they might be seen as mentally retarded or danger or something like that. Unbelievable stuff, you know, and it's all part of this we can control sort of thing. So this mindset is is it it seems to be universal, whatever era it is. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. It's just where really crazy things can be accepted, you know, uh, under mass hysteria. And George Brown, the father, the. The, the leader, the, the yeah, the father of the Brown family or whatever, he was persuaded to have all the members that had died in his family have their bodies exhumed 
because they wanted to see if the bodies were decomposed or not. And oh, and this this is where we go to that Smithsonian link that you sent me, the Great New England yeah. Vampire Panic. So from this, was it because of the tuberculosis or, or other things that from this, you That's start to people, get people... People think in modern times that, yeah, it was tuberculosis. And what had happened was they they figured that his wife and his other daughter, their bodies had the proper amount of decomposition at the time. But surprisingly, Mercy, she had almost no decomposition and still had blood in her heart. So that's why she got pegged as being the vampire that infected the rest of the family. So wow. what had happened was they, they cut her heart out and they turned it into ash and they actually turned it into like um, they mixed the ashes with water to create like a tonic mm. and was given to to Edwin, the father, um, to try to cure, you know, his tuberculosis at the time. And he, he, um, he pretty much it was to um, he actually died two months later. So it didn't really work, you know, but the idea of just uh, carving out Mercy's heart because it had a little bit of blood left in it and right. uh, mixing the ashes from it to, with water would um, actually cure, cure Edwin. Wow. Let's go to this uh, little bit here, Chris. Our guest is Chris Graves and Chris, I want to read to read to the audience, the opening of this Smithsonian magazine piece. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is the great vampire panic of uh, new England. So here it is. It's uh, originally written in uh, October of 20, 2012. Children playing near a hillside gravel mine found the first graves. One ran home to tell his mother, who was skeptical at first, until the boy produced a skull. Because this was Griswold, Connecticut in 1990, police initially thought the burials might be the work of a local serial killer named Michael Ross. They taped off the area as a crime scene. But the brown, decaying bones turned out to be more than a century old. The Connecticut state archaeologist Nick Ballantoni soon determined that the hillside contained a colonial-era farm cemetery. New England is full of such unmarked family plots, and the 29 burials were typical of the 1700s and early 1800s. The dead, many of them children, were laid to rest in thrifty Yankee style in simple wood coffins without jewelry or even much clothing, their arms resting by their sides or crossed over their chests, except that is for burial number four. Bell and Tony was interested in the grave even before the excavation began. It was one of only two stone crypts in the cemetery, and it was partially visible from the mine face. Scraping away soil with flat-edged shovels and then brushes and bamboo picks, the archaeologist and his team worked through several feet of earth before reaching the top of the crypt. When Bell and Tony lifted the first of the large flat rocks that formed the roof, he uncovered the remains of a red-painted coffin and a pair of skeletal feet. They lay, he remembers, in perfect anatomical position. But when he raised the next stone, Bellantoni saw the rest of the individual had been completely rearranged. The skeleton had been beheaded, skull and thigh bones rested atop the ribs and vertebrae. It looked like a skull and crossbones motif, a Jolly Roger. I'd never seen anything like it, Bellantoni recalls. 
Subsequent analysis showed that the beheading, along with other injuries, included rib fractures, occurred roughly five five years after death. Somebody had also smashed the coffin. The other skeletons in the grave hillside were packaged for reburial, but not J.B., as the 50-ish male skeleton from the 1830s came to be called because the initials spelled out in brass tacks on it because of the initials on his coffin lid. So they shipped them to the National Museum of Health Medicine. And one colleague asked, ever heard of the Jewett City Vampires? Yep. This is absolutely fascinating. Jewett City, Connecticut, 1854. Townspeople had exhumed several corpses suspected to be vampires that were rising from their graves to kill the living. Yeah. A, a few newspaper accounts of these events survived. Had the had the Griswold grave been desecrated for the same reason? So, well, I know. There's, yeah, there's a little correction, just so that people they're not like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I I was uh, crossing the streams, as they said in Ghostbusters. Um, ah, I've got a story it, about Ghostbusters. It was either tonight or tomorrow, actually. It was actually Edwin was um, was the son and the brother of Mercy Brown. Edwin died two months later after having that tonic that was mixed with his sister's heart, the ashes and everything. But um, Father George was the only member of the family not to contract tuberculosis. But here's the other here's the the other thing that's really intriguing, especially in terms of fiction. Yeah, there's a lot of scholars that believe Bram Stoker. Besides the Vlad the Impaler, you know, backstory of Dracula, you know, the real life of Vlad the Impaler, the other elements to his novel of Dracula, a lot of scholars believe that he read newspaper articles that came over, you know, from America about Mercy Brown for Dracula. Well, it makes some sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And, uh, and of course, Stoker had come up with his idea for Dracula when he was a teenager, yeah, and had sort of sketched out some of the things about um, you know Harker going over and visiting and you know being involved with the real estate game and things like that. And yeah. that that whole idea of having a novel that includes letters, yeah, um, very novel in a way, you know, that this there's this whole other story that that Harker is telling of, of his terrible experience at the castle. Absolutely fascinating. And um, yeah, love very the stor- story within the story. Uh, I love. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the timing of it is uh, pretty, pretty spot on, you know. Yeah, so there, so there are scholars out there that maintain that besides Vlad the Impaler, the other component to Bram Stoker's Dracula was Exeter, Rhode Island's Mercy Brown. Wow. Well, Chris, let me ask you this. Now, you know, we know that uh, if we look at stories like Edgar Allan Poe, and David, David, David Knight has mentioned this, Edgar Allan Poe's premature burial. Wow. Um, Stephen King wrote a very good story called, I think, Autopsy Room 13, um, you know, we have these instances of people getting catalepsy or something like it, where they appear to be dead or unmoving, and then they awaken later. 
That's um, where the term Saved by the Bell comes from, my friend, because they literally would have a bell attached to a string. So if someone woke up in their casket, someone would hear them and come dig them back up. Is that where you're going? I'm sorry if it was. No, no, <laughs> you're you're anticipating this perfectly. Uh, and uh, I don't know how long that lasted, uh, but it definitely Quite a seemed while. to be. Yeah. And I, I know that they did this sort of thing in, in Ireland in particular. Yeah. Uh, they did it in other places in Europe. And they also did it in some places in New England that I've heard, but I don't really know that much about it. I haven't looked too far into it other than one of my favorite Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. And mm-hmm. you would think it would be something right out of, you know, Rod Serling's uh, Twilight Zone or something. Yeah, but. yeah. Alfred Hitchcock Presents had an episode where a guy, a prisoner, I believe, at a jail, a prison rather, faked his own death and made a pact with the uh, the prison caretaker, cemetery caretaker or whatever, um, that once he was, you know, once he was able to escape after his funeral, that he would pay, uh, repay him somehow. And spoiler alert for a show from like night literally from like 1951 i think albert hitchcock presents at the end of the episode the guy is ringing the pulling the string because he woke up after uh being given whatever shot to put him to sleep or whatever for the funeral yeah he wakes up and he like lights a match i believe inside the coffin and he realizes that the guy that's supposed to come and dig him up is in the coffin with him because he had a heart attack and it's totally a Twilight Zone thing, but Alfred Hitchcock Presents was the show. So that's kind of where they were inspired by those old time um, stories about people allegedly. And I believe it, there were a couple of cases where people were uh, dug up. And yeah. I just don't have the articles in front of me right now. But yeah, that, that term, Saved by the Bell, was right. not just Screech and Zach Morris and all that. It wasn't just a TV show from the 80s, a goofy one. Right. It was an actual term because people would wake up all the time after being declared dead, having full, fully-fledged funerals, wakes, and they would wake up because it was such a deep, deep sleep. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, and of course, people would, would ascribe some demonic possession to this, oh, that they yeah. are actually coming back from the dead or something, right? right? Yeah, well, there's that too. It makes it even more. Uh, how do you explain that away in those times? Where oh yeah, yeah, and which reminds me, you know, you talk about the uh, the Alfred Hitchcock presents story. Yeah. I wonder if that inspired Richard Matheson and his son R.C. They wrote a story together called "Where There's a Will." Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you've read it, Chris, but I won't yeah, give I away the ending. Yeah. You 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 have. I think I, be- I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. A guy wakes up in the coffin and yeah. at first he doesn't know where he is. And he, it's like, there's wood all around him. And he's like, where am I? And he reaches in his pocket and he has a lighter and yeah. he realizes where he is and he's in yeah. a coffin and he's, don't tell buried. me, is, is it, is he buried with the guy that's supposed to come dig him up? No, no, oh, okay. he's, all he's right. all alone, but he's got to get out of there. Cause he knows he's going to run out of oxygen. First right. he freaks out and then he realizes, wait a minute. <laughs> And all he has is his lighter. Yeah. And he finds a way to get out of the coffin. Oh. And then he's trying to get back to his wife. And it the where there's a will is a double meaning because the guy uses his own will to get out. 
But then, then there's you, a will that he left behind. Yeah. There's a will for inheritance. Yeah, well, and then a will, there's a relative out of the yes, place. yes. Yeah. It's a it's great, great story. It's super short. So and Quentin, the ending, Quentin he, must have taken that inspiration from that same story then for Kill Bill. When she yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I, I, I bet, I bet you're right. Absolutely, yeah. yeah just awesome, awesome stuff. Really cool, <laughs> you know. And and so you're talking about like. Um, you talk about Rhode Island and yeah. uh, and you know tuberculosis and things like that. Let's shift over into uh, the final final bit that we might want to discuss now, and it, I think we should open it up because it's now, it Lizzie requires Borden. Lizzie <laughs> Borden, the Lizzie Borden stories. There's plenty more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live coming up. I'm Derek J. I don't want a politician to represent me. To me, government is the idea that one group of people can coerce everyone to comply with an edict or face increasing punishments up to and including death. Despite perhaps the most noble of intentions, the best government services are a far cry from what could be provided for by voluntary interactions. Besides, the people who call themselves the government wage wars and put peaceful people in jail for crimes involving no victims. If Starbucks used some of its money to drop bombs, I wouldn't shop there. So why would I support the American empire? The empire does not require my consent. Derek J's Victimless Crime Spree. You can order your copy of the Director's Cut DVD now at VictimlessCrimeSpree.com. We continue with Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Digging into legends, lore, and mysterious crimes with Chris Graves. Let's go over right now. And I'll show people the photograph of Lizzie Borden here and all these great links you've sent over to me. And I'm going to click on one. And as as you and I have discussed, I've been to the Lizzie Borden house three times in Fall yeah. River. And um, did you people... ever did you ever do the bed bed and breakfast? I I yeah. didn't have I didn't have the cojones to actually go through with it. Yeah, I've stayed over three times. It's awesome. Uh, you have you have a typical that yeah. uh, breakfast or dinner from that era uh, in the in the dining room where they had it. And it is very strange. They've got the couch laid out exactly where uh, the murderer killed Lizzie Borden's father. Um, yeah. And and then you go up to the bedroom where her stepmother was murdered. And, you know, the people who own it, they've got it all down. They explain everything to you sure. uh, and, you know, what the circumstances were like and, and the differences between the uh, Protestants and the Catholics, the pro-Irish versus the pro-English uh, Yep. And uh, the different areas of town where they lived and why it seems that her father, who was pro-English, got uh, uh, who, who, who was murdered, of course, yeah. why the jury seems to have acquitted her because nobody liked her father. He was a banker and they were mostly of Irish Catholic stock yeah. and they were seen as the downtrodden. He was the highfalutin pro-British Anglican. And they didn't like that. 
And so that they think that's one of the reasons why she was acquitted of this murder, because the jury identified mostly with her and the fact that she resented her father greatly. Uh, The will had been changed. It was going to go to now the woman who had married her widowed father, and she didn't like that woman. Uh, But there are other. So a lot of the circumstantial evidence seems to indicate that she she would have been the only one who really could have committed the murder because the maid was there, but really not there. She was moving around and was seen and stuff like that. Um, but there's other stuff that indicates, and for example, it looked like she was going to try to poison her father. She kept, she kept going to the drugstore to get strychnine, I think it was, or arsenic. And yeah, yeah. And the druggist was like, why are you getting this now? She's like, Oh, I want to take care of this. Uh, I want to, I want to put it on a Cape, uh, and take care of this. But it was like mid August. Like, why would she be dealing? But you know, who knows? Maybe she would want to do that. Yeah, because evidently she wanted to use it as like a a deterrent for rats or something to not get into her stuff or something like that. Tell me what you think about the Lizzie Borden case. I'll click on one of these uh, Lizzie Borden stories here and we'll we'll call up that image of Lizzie right there. I I tend to think, and it's not a popular opinion, but I tend to think it was uh, Lizzie's sister and her sister's uh, husband. His husband, yeah. I tend to because Lizzie was uh, an easy target, kind of like a lot of these folks that they would you know, accuse of being monsters and uh, witches and, you know, vampires. Um, not so much a, a land grab in this situation, but, you know, other monetary benefits. That's like this. Well, not a popular take on it. Now uh, that's that's a that's a that's a strong possibility because her her brother-in-law was coming around a lot. He kept visiting, and he he was yeah. he was there. He he showed up. Um, this just for uh, viewers right now. If you're listening, folks, where there's a photograph. The house is green. It's uh, got uh, green shingles. It's got uh, green um, shutters. And it, the way it, it works is uh, if you're looking at this, the, the main door into and out of which you go in and emerge is actually on the back yeah. of the house. And the front door, they don't really use. Um, but the front door, if people are looking where my cursor is, the, the main road is actually over this away. And yeah. uh, or in fact, no, actually, what this is, is this is a reverse well, image. Well, right across the street, it was a, a very, very tiny parking lot. And that's where I parked. And I literally got, you know, I'm going to confess here. I, I took, a, a, you know, a selfie in front of yeah. that, that sign right there near the door. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. So this is uh, you can go in on the left side. There's the main driveway and there's actually like a little you can see the uh, outside building over here. There's like an outside building. They have a gift shop over there and you park in the back parking lot there and there's a way out out this way. But the main thing that actually you can walk around this way, you can't drive in this way. So, um, yeah, you're looking at this from across the street. And then in this in this area behind the building, Chris, there, it was actually a peach or a peach orchard. They had peach trees there and there was a, there was a well. And a lot of people wondered if she had disposed of the hatchet, the yeah. murderer, if it was her in the well. And that's one of the things that they, they've never found the murder weapon. And they would have thought that if it was this particular hatchet that they had, um, there would have been 
some remnants of rust or something like that on the bodies, but there wasn't. And it looked right. like, so they couldn't really, they had no murder weapon. They couldn't yeah. really pin the murder on her. They so, just thought again, that she was creepy. That's what she was. That's what she was guilty of in the public eye after the fact was that she was creepy. And I think that made her even more of a target for something like this because people would believe it, you know? Well, uh, yeah. And, you know, there's a whole nother angle here, too, as as you see here from uh, this is um, this is uh, grunge. Grunge has this story, and I've never heard this, and I've stayed at the house three times. Um, but yeah. you, you have here, according to, to KQED, which is out west, uh, a nurse who treated Lizzie said that Lizzie had confessed that her boyfriend committed the murders. She was getting to an age where she really wasn't going to marry. Uh, she yeah. was going to be a spinster. Um, and I didn't know that she had a boyfriend that said that her boyfriend committed the murders because her father disapproved of the match. The boyfriend's identity remains a mystery. Others well, have one, well, that yeah, that, I mean, sorry, yeah, that's one of the lesser no lesser reported things too about the boyfriend there. Yeah, interesting. I didn't know this. Uh, it says here others have suggested that Lizzie and Bridget, the Borden's maid, conspired yeah. to commit the murders together because either because of a romantic relationship between the pair or a mutual dislike of the older Borden's. And yeah. yeah, the father was not well liked. That's for sure. Uh, Bridget appeared to know or at least suspect that Lizzie's stepmother was dead before the discovery of the body. And this is one of the things that people should know. Yeah. Lizzie's story is such that the way she recounted it, it would have been virtually impossible for her not to have walked by the open door where her stepmother's body was lying on the floor with her head bashed in. Exactly. So yeah. there's something very strange there. Um, so I think she. I think whether she was. Uh, this is the. This is the difficult part. Whether she was the sole perpetrator is up in the air for me. Hmm. I think other people and her were involved with it, just based on like the trial and the evidence and everything, and these other theories later on that you know, like the one you just read about boyfriend that was never really disclosed until like all these years later and yeah. then you got the there's even other theories where the unknown boyfriend was conspiring with lizzie's sister and her boyfriend like that's another angle too and then there's this this uh the uncle Nurse. oh yeah yeah this uncle, guy yeah. named morse let's uh yeah. let me uh let me go over here yeah so let's check that out and this is from the grunge piece again Lastly, Lizzie's uncle, John V. Morse, may have been the culprit, according to the book Cold Case to Case Closed. Yeah. Morse had been staying with the family, but was dismissed as a suspect because of an alibi that was later disproved. Interesting. Moreover, the uncle was a butcher who always carried a cleaver which is coincidentally a very handy murder weapon, according to the country. Yeah, it comes know. in handy, yeah. Yeah, Literally. yeah. And it's very interesting because there are so many suspicious things that you see yeah. in the weeks prior to. First, you got the strained relationship between Lizzie and her father. He yeah. married after he was widowed. He married a woman she did not like. He changed the will. 
She was becoming a spinster. It didn't look like she was going to marry. And now it looked like she wasn't going to inherit. And she might have many years where she might actually have to work out in the, out in the, in the neighborhood. He was a very well-to-do banker who was not liked. She was visiting the apothecary and getting poison. And people were wondering now I don't see that there's any record that her father was unhealthy and that she was doing slow poisoning on him or anything like that, that nothing, I've seen. Nothing I've seen. Yeah. That hasn't come up in the, all right. The then there's the maid who also was in the house and you'd say, look, unless, um, you know, if, if you're a, if you're going to commit a murder, yeah. Unless you know that the maid is very far away. Are you going to take that first blow and maybe screw up and have somebody speak up? Right. And because, and by the way, it was very, very warm. This is another thing they bring up when you stay at the house. The doors and windows were mostly open. Like they had airflow going through because it was so hot. And so, so then there's the question of, you know, doors slamming and things like that. Do, do people come in and out? And could anybody have gotten in this sort of thing? But if you're the murderer and you are aware that there's another person and, and the maid was going out to the peach field, out to the well, yep. she was going to the outside house. She was uh, wa- going in a lot of different places, but you could see, and I've, I've laid on the couch in the pose of the father. It was very, very strange. So uh, Heather wow. Graham, the novelist. Yeah. She and her husband and I, uh, plus uh, another couple writers, um, we all stayed at the house. And yeah. um, and it's uh, it's a very strange thing because, you know, it's weird because you were attracted to the place because of the fact that these poor people were murdered. You know, yeah. so it's a, it's a perverse, uh, morbid curiosity sort of thing that you try to suppress. Um but you can't help but start to try to puzzle it out and say, well, look, you know, was she wrongly accused or did uh, uh, did a criminal walk free? And of course, as you know, after she was found not guilty, she got a lot of money and yeah. she invested in a house on the upper. And, the, you know, because the way that Fall River is set up, as you know, but folks around the area don't know, right. the upper class lived on the, the hill that's at the center of the city. And then as you lead out of the city more towards Rhode Island, you come down from the hill. That's where the Irish immigrants, yeah. a lot of the Catholics lived. And the upper hill was where the English people lived. And they were very well to do. They ran the banks. They had a lot of the businesses. They did a lot of the employing of the, young, the, the lower class people. So she got a house up there. She would have parties and invite everybody from down. Like she, she was very grateful that they let her oh. off. From like New Bedford and everything. Yeah. 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 And, and she was beloved by those people. Like they loved her. She did all sorts of charitable things and all sorts of stuff for the rest of her life, I guess. So not everyone thought she was creepy, but they thought she was creepy enough during the trial, apparently, that, yeah. you know, but in the end, she was acquitted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, there's so many theories now, Guard, that it reminds me of Jack the Ripper in, in terms of all the different theories, one of which, the the one that I gravitate towards, which is really out there, is the idea that he escaped to America and is actually buried in Michigan. 
Oh, tell me about that. While you do that, Chris, let's draw the attention. And I want to tell the audience again, if you posted a, a couple things about the scariest stories you've ever read or the yeah. candy that you loved, I've only been into the Rockman chat and the Rumble chat just very briefly. It's been such an intense night. So intense. I'm so, Chris, I'm so glad that I know you. You just, you're the I best. I wish the camera was working. Oh, no. It's, it's, just, it's yeah. like, it's, uh, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's so much fun. And I want to show right now. Yeah. Uh, one of the great conversations that you had with Peter Seacosh oh, about yeah. Jack the Ripper. And yeah. it is just the knowledge you guys have of the Ripper thing. And I was in the chat and I brought up oh, the yeah. uh, Patricia Cornwell book called yeah. Case Closed, Jack the Ripper, and so on and so forth, where she accused the uh, the artist uh, Walter Sickert of yeah. having been, the, and she made all these psycho psychoanalyses things, claims and stuff. Like she said, Oh, well, Sickert's sister had been very involved with charitable causes, but he never yeah. gave to charity. So obviously he was a sociopath. It's like, what are you talking about? It, exactly. You've worked with the FBI and you're making that claim. Like, come on, that's insane. That's stupid. But there were a lot of circumstantial things. He was involved with theater, hung out in the Whitechapel area quite a while, D showed up at one of the crime scenes yeah. in the Camden town area when nobody should have known about it. Exactly. So there, yeah. And, yeah. And they even did a mitochondrial uh, uh, DNA analysis, although it's mitochondrial of right. uh, an envelope that uh that the ripper licked and yeah. a stamp that sickard had licked and they came up to be like a 96 percent match but of course in a population like london that leaves you know like uh, how, i don't know how many hundreds <laughs> right. of people right so tell they us actually, a little bit about yeah tell us about well, like coming over to america that's well there yeah there was uh i guess at the, the period of time when the ripper slayings were kind of coming to an end in britain there were a whole rash of uh, Ripper-style murders in New York City all the way up leading up to Michigan. That's why people think it's a certain individual who I don't – I wish I had this stuff in front of me right now. But, yeah, no, that guy is – the guy that they claim was actually Jack the Ripper escaping from, from Britain. Uh, supposedly, he's buried in Michigan. Um, I forget the town because it was a while ago. But there were like a whole rash of Ripper-like um, prostitute slayings around that time period, which made made a lot of people think, "Oh, the timing adds up here." Like the the Ripper murders ceased over in England, and now these other Ripper-style murders picked up in New York City and the the East Coast around the same time. That's oh. where that that theory. And I always wanted to do some kind of a screenplay on that whole theory too. And I think a lot of people confuse the doctor who came from New Hampshire yeah. and got set up in the Devil in the White City book that chronicles yeah. that doctor who you know had that whole building that he yeah. so you know had people work on in sections and created this like house of death. Uh, yeah. During the World's Fair and re would recruit people to stay there and then murder them and experiment on them in the basement. And they found all the bones and stuff like that. Sort of like Ben Franklin's ben, place. Ben Franklin, yes. So, now, now on that on that side, we know that Ben Franklin was involved with the Hellfire Club. And in fact, yes. when I went to England, um, just down from Trafalgar Square, there yeah. was a pub that had been running and it just closed during the pandemic. It, it is no longer running. But it had been a pub that continued to run from the time of Franklin on. And wow. we know Franklin was 
something of a quirky dude. He took air baths in the nude sitting He'd next be to naked him. outside. Yeah. You know, yeah. The air baths yeah. 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 And yeah. there could have been reasons for that. He might've had uh man on fire syndrome, erythromyalgia, you know, who right. knows what it was that he needed something to cool his body. We don't know, but he was a member of the hellfire club. Yeah. Uh, it's not necessarily that they were, you know, worshiping Hecate as, uh, as uh, this woman in Pennsylvania is, uh, is described as doing. Uh, right. But maybe they just wanted to get together, bring in prostitutes, engage in stuff that wasn't seen as. Seems as, like eyes wide shut. Type. Yeah, those parties and stuff like that. But there might yeah. be some stronger Illuminati Masonic connections, perhaps uh, yeah. some sort of uh, um, um, you might call it. Uh, like uh, what is it? Like What's a, that? Like a cremation of care thing. Yes. Yes. That like sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, there are the bones that they found in the brownstone, the the flat where uh, he would stay. Yeah. But that kind of has an easy explanation for most people is the right. guy who owned it or rented it or also lived with him was a surgeon and often did. Yeah, um, they use that. But I question that. I'm like, is it possible Ben Franklin was actually pretty like a sick individual too you know you never know you yeah yeah and and of course we know that his son was a loyalist and they never reconciled uh his son was exiled and he never came back to to north america and ben franklin uh i don't know if they made up but i'm sure they probably saw each other uh occasionally when he would go over but yeah, so there's that whole story. And there's another story in addition to the devil in the white city over to the West this way, since I'm sort of facing North Northwest. Uh, <laughs> and so the camera is coming from Santa's Santa's uh, angle. But um, uh, it's interesting, Chris, because at the same time that the Ripper murders were happening, there was, and I've, I've read a, a short uh, sort of a novel slash nonfiction thing that this yeah. woman wrote about a guy who was a poisoner who actually came from Canada and moved down into Michigan and Illinois. And he had, he, yeah. And he started to poison women. First, he poisoned this woman that he was engaged to marry her, but he wanted her, he wanted her money. Right. And then he killed her and with poison. And, uh, he was a doctor. He, he ran, um, he ran this thing where he had this, uh, special medicine, yeah, uh, that he was selling, you know, snake oil stuff. Like an elixir. And then, what's that? Like an elixir. Yeah, it was an elixir. It was Doctor So and So's, you know, elixir. Right. And um, and he ended up moving to escape from the authorities. And <laughs> his family was here. They were aware that he was being hunted. He yeah. left uh, Northern America and Canada, and he had contracted syphilis, and so oh. he was slowly losing his mind. He went over to London. And hey, he committed. So, hey, that? so they think that's what some people think the Jack, Jack the Ripper uh, killer, Jack the Ripper had syphilis and that he was a part of the royal family. Yeah, yeah. That, that I got to watch that Johnny Depp movie again. Uh, yeah, yeah. I got to see that again. I cut I you off, you've... though. Sorry. I thought this, I actually thought that's where you were leading with the, uh, the syphilis thing. Yeah. Oh, no. But, but it is interesting because what's really weird is this guy. This guy, he poisoned like five more women at the same in the same number of like years, almost. Yeah. The Ripper was already doing his thing for for those months that the Ripper was doing it. This guy came in, started to poison prostitutes. 
Right. Because evidently he felt that he had contracted syphilis from a prostitute. So he that's wanted to get theory, back. At the, that's the theory of the Ripper. Being yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Similar thing. And they, they found him guilty. And at Trader's Gate, they hanged the guy yeah. in London. And just before his hanging, somebody overheard him say something uh, like about Jack. Like, Jack, I know Jack or Jack knows. And they had wow. written to each other. They were they were corresponding with each other somehow. Wow. It's it's absolutely wild. Like uh, evidently, like they were putting mess. It's it's this crazy story where this guy actually admired Jack the Ripper. Wow. And they don't know whether they actually met these two guys. But this guy, the reason this guy got nailed was because some police officer recognized something to do with his shoes has something to do with the shoes that he had, some nice shoes that didn't belong in some some area or something right. like that. Yeah. And he realized that this was a a, a, a john for prostitutes, right. even though the dude was dressed up like he'd forgotten to make himself look like a, a bum or something and forgotten his shoes. It was like something the, like, the yeah. three, like the three tramps in Dealey Plaza. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? With no, no. What's all that about? There's plenty more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live, coming up. Eleutheromania, the insatiable desire for freedom. We have been enslaved for all our lives. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. We continue on Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Oh, the three tramps. It's a famous photograph of the three suspects, supposed suspects that they are they were parading through Dealey Plaza uh, from the railroad car. And they all, all three of these supposed bums have like brand new expensive shoes on. Whoa. You know, their clothes aren't dirty. They, they're the farthest looking from bums around. You know, some people think one of them is Charles Harrelson, Woody Harrelson's father, because he's made the claim that he was a grassy knoll shooter for yeah. a long time. Yeah. And I think is, 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 I know Woody, you know, Woody had some tough times trying to deal with what his father had, had, had been like. He was a hitman for, yeah, hitman for the mob. He he was a hitman and he killed a, uh, a judge and went to prison for life for it. Yeah. It's wild. It's, it's so strange, you know, to, to be raised by a guy who gives you love and affection probably. uh, And yet, you know, you discover these things. It's absolutely weird. Um, yeah. And and I can you know I can imagine. Let me ask you this, Chris. On on sure. on yeah, on the JFK story. Um, I know that um, uh, over at the Future Freedom Foundation, uh, Jacob Hornberger is you know like you like Don Jeffries, very steeped in a lot of knowledge about the JFK assassination yeah. and and the RFK uh, RFK assassination. Oh, yeah. And um. Uh, what's what's curious about this is that uh, he says that the uh, Zapruder film was edited, and uh, and I don't know if you've heard anything about that. Is, is yeah, that-, that 
Um, I personally think it was. I mean, if you just look at, um, I mean, I don't know what your take is on uh, Jim Fet- James Fetzer. Um, he uh, kind of went into the Sandy Hook stuff later on and things like oh, that. Oh, yeah, I don't know that much about him. Well, anyway, he did a lot of the original 9-11 truth research back in the day. Mm-hmm. Before that, he was a huge JFK researcher. He put out a book called The Great Zapruder Film Hoax. And he actually, in my opinion, did some decent work. And me, uh, Donald uh, and I have talked about that many times, uh, Fetzer's book. Um, there is a lot of weird cuts and, like, uh, oddities in the Zapruder film. If you actually look at the crowds on both sides of the limo, yeah, they they their movements are very, like, unrealistic looking or unnatural looking if the next time you go to see it. Yeah. It's yeah. like it was almost it seems like they were filmed at a, a shortly before the motorcade shows up and then they kind of like a, a pasting of both together in a way. If you look at I can tell you right now, uh, there's definitely been an editing to that one. You never see the motorcade turn on to Elm Street, that wide turn that William. That's, yeah, that's true. All, that's of a sudden, right. the, all of a sudden, the limo just shows up. It's just. And yeah. That's it. You see the two cops that were on motorcycles before. You see them at the very beginning. But you never see the uh, limo stop that over 200 witnesses claim to have seen that stopped for a good two, between two and five seconds. William Greer hit the brakes. And we know that because um, the film that was across the street from Abraham Zapruder actually shows the uh, brake lights like turning on at a certain point. That's right. And, you know, uh, I know that uh, Jacob Hornberger also mentions that a lot of the people who were close to Zapruder or had their hands on the film or anything like that, they met very untimely deaths. Well, a lot of the people that he dealt with, uh, we found out were CIA assets after the fact. And he may have been one himself. And the guy, I forget the the name of the actual guy. Peter's going to kill me if he sees this. The name of the guy that was running Time Life at the time, yeah, at the, at the time, um, he was a known CIA asset. And he was um, basically in charge of purchasing um, the rights to the Zapruder film, and that's why the Time Life building held the Zapruder film pretty much until 1975, when Geraldo would play it on uh, Good Night America, his yeah. show in 1975, yeah. with Dick Gregory there, and yeah. Um, Robert Groden and everything. But prior to that, the only other time it came out of the vault was for Jim Garrison's trial in 1968 or whatever. I think, yeah, 68, 69. So that the jury could actually watch, watch it. But anyway, yeah, there's splices all over there, man. And like, there's supposedly supposed to be bullet holes in the stem and three-way sign. Those are not in the existing film today it's a lot of things that eyewitnesses saw that are not in the film like the actual real uh wounds to the back of jfk's head wow yeah Uh, and and, you know the whole magic bullet thing and and being brought in spectra arlen specter and gerald ford that was the creation of both of them and absolutely total cutouts total cutouts their entire careers promoted through cia connections president of the united states without uh because nixon resigns yeah yeah then then he pardons nixon and you know it makes me it makes me think chris and i know we sort of touched on this a little bit but 
Um, you know, if we look at some of the cultural icons in fiction and music and things like that, whether it's connections to Tavistock or yeah. even earlier than that, you look at people like Aleister Crowley, uh, you look at people like, um, uh, you know, Ian Fleming's James Bond books or Roald Dahl or, um, <laughs> you know, all these people, uh, you know, H.G. Wells. So many of these people were in positions that, yeah, you know, even even uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, possibly, uh, although probably unlikely. And Huxley, um, Huxley was another. Yeah, one. Huxley, exactly. They were Huxley in died. On, he died on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. That's right. I remember that. That's what that was going to be the big news until Kennedy was assassinated. Kennedy, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, but what's what's curious that that I I find is it makes you think. Okay, some of these people. Yeah. And some of these, you know, bands and so on, some of these movements were promoted by things like the Tavistock Institute over in <laughs> London and, you know, that sort of thing. And they oh, yeah. they try to form these new narratives for the zeitgeist to pick up, for the culture to pick up. And they'll fund. They put in a bunch of money. They go to Laurel Canyon. They do all these things. And then the I'm Laurel, thinking about the Laurel Canyon thing was all uh, one of my heroes, the late great Dave McGowan, went yeah. all into the, how the the anti-war movement of the 1960s and the peace and love of the hippies and everything was all manufactured by military and intelligence communities in Laurel Canyon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. controlled opposition, Absolutely. and uh, you know, and and coming in Generation X. You know, I just I you could see how completely fraudulent it was. You know, yeah. I, I just sat there and looked at the hippie movement. I'm like, this is ridiculous. They're they're not anti-authoritarian. A lot no. of these people are suckers. And um, so but was what was fascinating was I started to think about some of these figures who yeah. were major, major figures. Now, you look at a guy like Roald Dahl, amazing talent. Stories are incredible. The wit is amazing. Yeah. Like every one of his stories is amazing. Right. The guy clearly was a genius, brilliant guy. Yeah. Um, by the same token, he was a spy. He was. So, you know, yeah. how much of his popularity <laughs> came yeah. from, you know, it's it's a very strange thing. Um, you got people like Julia Child, right? Julia she Child a, created shark repellent. And, you know, something, Guard, a lot of people that, don't, that a lot of people don't know this. She at the very last minute. Uh, or her assistant, one of the two, canceled her flight on Flight 11 on September 11, 2001. Kind of like Seth MacFarlane, a family guy. Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch there. Mark Wahlberg, he was supposed to be on Flight 11 as well. And Julia Child Whoa. was. Whoa. That'll, that'll be in Hidden History 3 coming up. So. Wow. Don Jeffrey is going to be, you guys oh, are rocking it. So, and again, you know, I say it with a certain amount of, uh, of trepidation with some caveats and the same but thing. I don't want to describe. Could be, could be something to it. These historic, these, um, pop culture figures are used. They're used to shape public opinion. Yeah. And I think you're a hundred percent with, and John Potash goes into what Dave McGowan, uh, left, when Dave McGowan got sick uh, and was murdered, in my opinion, uh, John Potash kind of took up and Donald Jeffries took up the, the mantle in terms of continuing that line of questioning about, mm -hmm. you know, especially on Borrow Fame, Don's uh, book before Masking the Truth. Yeah. What had happened was he was kind of going into the uh, weird scenes inside the canyon, Dave McGowan territory, Dave McGowan, right, right, because right. 
they, John and Dave and John Potash, they were able to make connections with the intelligence communities and entertainment, like music and movements and John Lennon's assassination. But but the only thing for me, Chris, is that I don't want to, in thinking about the fact that there are these other shadowy forces that could either promote someone who is unknown and help make that person known or take some people who are relatively unknown, but have a lot of talent and make them known. You know, the problem with, with that is it can be seen as undercutting the authentic talent and work of those people. And I just don't know, you know, so Raw Dahl clearly genius. Whether they were given it or not. Yeah. It's a good question. That you can't really prove, but right. Right. Yeah. I think so. It is possible. Yeah, right. And 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 it's and it's weird. It makes you think about like, okay, so we know that the Tavistock Institute was very interested in pushing the psychedelics and that whole yes. era. We know that the Beatles, yeah. uh, they had gotten some smiles from the Tavistock Institute, but I don't know how much, you know, and some people so, think again, it's fully a Tavistock thing, the Beatles, which really breaks my heart, but you never wait, know. what what was that? So some people think that the Tavistock was completely behind the Beatles, which breaks my heart. Yeah. But I can't prove it one way or the other. But I well, can't so, say. And then, yeah. Well, sorry. Yeah, but then you then you go to well, if they weren't uh, so, and I know that you know that yeah. there are so many great bands out there that yeah. could be huge, and they just don't. You know, just circumstances, it doesn't happen. Some you know, of them get your break. What's that thing, guard? You ever question that? Like, why do some people get the break? Exactly. 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 That's exactly. when it comes into play. You go, yeah. well, how? Why? What made these ones different from these starving artists right. over here? Right. Do they have any weird connections, like family connections to military intelligence? Sometimes I'm not right. saying all of them, but right. a lot of these people, like Jim Morrison, his father was responsible for the Gulf of Tonkin incident, one of the biggest yeah. false flags. In American or world history. And then all of a sudden he becomes a rock star that could not read or write music and was going to film school, UCLA to be a director. Now the, the words he comes up with, well, this (laughs) is the thing. So you have his girlfriend, you know, talking about his poetry and, you know, she's got letters from him and stuff like that. Yeah. So he, you're saying he couldn't read music. Or write music, but pretty he could sure, read. I'm pretty sure it's on record that he was. He even said that he himself. I could be wrong, but I think he was even quoted as saying, "I'm not a musician. I can't read." Or no, write no, music. but but he could he could read and write his lyricism. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so this is the thing. It's not that the government can just turn on people right, right. who have no talent and then just put them in these slots. Sometimes they can if they're good looking people. They can make them phenomenons. I'm sure, right? Some um, people think like a lot of the hits of the 60s that were like the anti-war peace and love crowd, like those mm, kind of songs. Mm, Some yeah. people think it, the Wrecking Crew session musicians were responsible for most of those hits. Well, we know that they you know? sure did produce a lot of them. You just look at the monkeys and they, you know, they've openly yeah. talked about that. It's part of their history. And then they exactly. broke free and they were able to, they were able to do headquarters, which showed that they had talent as well. Oh yeah. And then, and, yeah. and then they did head and that was amazing and stuff like that. Uh, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating. But I, only say, I only say the wrecking crew just because uh, you're, you're right. They, it's not to take the any legitimate talent away from, any of the legitimate artists that, you know, put their stuff out there. But you do have 
you know, things like the Wrecking Crew, where yeah. a bunch of session musicians that don't take the credit at the time yeah. for a lot of these hits. Like, could they be a military intelligence thing? Now I'm really sounding really No, insane. no, but I okay, so about, let's, let's yeah. look at it this way. Let's look at it this way. We look at the narrative for Singing in the Rain. A one, yeah. you know, a beautiful story, people breaking out from the silent era into the talkies. And there's yeah. that scene with the yes, 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 no, no, no. And and so we know that the woman who really has the beautiful voice and is singing yeah. is the talented one behind the, the face. You know, it's right. a Cyrano de Bergerac type thing. <laughs> yeah. So um you even got Millie Vanilli right there. Yeah. There. They right. didn't sing anything. Right, right. And you know, I, I think over over time, clearly these bands, these musicians, yeah. if they have been given a leg up they've got to sustain it themselves. You know, they've got to show yeah. that they've got the talent. Um, but there are these, you know, these momentary movements, these, these popular uh, eras of things that pop up and you say, how much of this was fed and propelled? Well, you know, some pe- well, there is some people that there, I've seen some presentations out there where even, I don't know if you're a fan of the band, the police or not, but some people think that that was put together by an intelligence uh, well, you got Copeland, right? Yeah, yeah. And you got IRS records. That's right? right. They they call yeah. it IRS records. Yeah. But then again, you know, then then you've got. Uh, it, it's it's it's, it's so weird. I'm difficult not, to it, figure I think it out. Could, could it be a case of a little bit of uh, both? Maybe. Well, could that's that that's possible. Instances where there there's these uh, musicians and. Um, you know, filmmakers that are propped up by the Intel communities, but also legitimate, you know, um, artists and, and things like that, like that struggle and never are propped up and never given yeah. the time of day in terms of that lucky stroke that we I hear think. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's really the case. And um, yeah, I, well, uh, you know, I don't know. I'd say. I'll just, I'll, the jury's out for me, but I'll just say yeah. that. Chris, let's hop into Rockfin and Rumble Chat and see okay. what people have going on. And Chris, get yeah. ready because I want you to tell me when sure. you went trick-or-treating yeah. what your favorite Halloween candy was or still is. You want to know right and, now? Candy uh, candy. Hold on. Wait, wait hold on. <laughs> I, want, I want people, yeah. I want people, uh, oh, right. Brian, Brian Dead McCartney is in Rockfin Chat. Millie Lip Syncing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anarchy Andrew is there. Uh, and Anarchy Andrew says, girl, you know, it's true. I was going to say, girl, you know, it's true, 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 <laughs> This true, is great. True. This is great. And Brian Dave McCarty says, Mephistopheles was not my name. Uh, oh, this is awesome. Great, great chat. So everybody throw into the chat. And I know you might have already done it. So I apologize that I didn't get there sooner. Throw into your chat. Oh, Brian Dave McCartney says, wax lips and whistles. Remember those wax lips with the candy stuff inside? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Remember the monsters that you could get and you could break them up and they had the mummy and they had like the, the sweet liquid inside. I would, I would have that. And I would have uh, what you referred to earlier as a Ben Cooper mask. It was, a yeah, Adam the West Batman, Adam West, Batman, Ben Cooper mask. Oh, I, yep. Yep. I had the Spidey. I had the Spidey. Oh, one. I had that grade. too. Yeah. Yeah. Soups. I had those as well. Ah, it was awesome stuff. And uh, okay. Let's see what other ones we got over in rumble chat, Chris, before we get your favorite candy or favorite, um, <laughs> Hold on just a minute. Okay, so we've got uh, J.B. Morrison, not Jim Morrison, right. uh, 2112. Excellent. Um, <laughs> let's see. We've got uh, over in Rumble is Northern Cardinal. And 
who else is over there? Boy, a lot of people watching over there. That's super cool. Uh, let's see. So, yeah, throwing guard. I went sightseeing in Salem back in 1984, says Northern Cardinal. That was a cool tour and folklore. Yeah, and you go down to the museum, they have that whole thing where you go in and they have the stuff that you can watch with the sounds and everything. It's pretty weird. Get in there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, and they're amazing restaurants there. Last time I was down there, I had I had lunch with Heather Graham and her husband and uh, a couple of their kids, and it was yeah. just the best fish. Oh, man, so good. Uh, so let me see. Jason Barker. I'm for candy corn, he says. Brian Taylor says, I like candy corn as well. Don't know why it gets so much hate. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Brian McCartney has a memory of using a pillowcase for candy. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Brian Deb says, mix it with honey, uh, honey roasted peanuts, and it's like a salted nut roll. Yeah. Whoa. That would be wicked good, as they'd say in New England. As long as it didn't, yeah, wicked piss. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it didn't have a razor blade in it. I know. (laughs) Hey, Chris, let me ask you this. Did you ever go uh, dipping for apples, dunking for apples? Oh, of course. yeah. Yeah. Now, when you were a kid and you went dunking for apples, I remember the first time I ever put my head all the way under, I was dunking for an apple at our friend the leech's house. And I saw some of the leeches when we were at uh, the memorial service for one of our neighbors, Mr. Driscoll, last Saturday. And I remember they had a big one of those big farmer metal buckets and, you know, the apples were there. Did they put coins inside the apples that you would try to get the coins? No, at the time, I I, uh, I think they didn't do anything to the apples just for fear that people would think you were, you know, putting razor blades in there. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, in this case, they would have pennies, not all the apples. I do remember that, yeah. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, you'd have to try to see because they'd float and then you'd see and you're like, oh, you'd target, you know, like <laughs> a bird going after a, a fish. A, oh, yeah. And you like, <laughs> pin it at the bottom. You had to pin it at the bottom and then you could get it up and it would be great, you know, but yeah. then it would have nickels and quarters in some of them, you know, like the super special things like, oh, I'm going for that. I'm not, I'm not going for the penny. I'm going for the dime. I'm going for that, you know, over the quarter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was great. It was really great. Uh, let me see. Matrox two is, is there over in rumble. Thank you for joining us. Matrix. Uh, also let's see. Taylor Saunders is in there with us. Um, Brian Dem McCartney says, no, popcorn no popcorn balls or caramel apples those were the razor blade candies no you never accept an apple out of somebody's house no No way i can get my own apples thank you yeah i want something that's wrapped and i want to unwrap (laughs) it and look at it under the light and of course when we invest in the x-ray machine then i'll really know yeah, and you know what? To be fair, though, to come to find out, a lot of that hysteria, and that was a hysteria, too. People put yeah. pins and stuff. It was actually, uh, like, I think maybe one or two isolated cases where it was a family member doing it to the kid. Oh. And then that kind of grew into this big, huge uh, thing, kind of like, like yeah, urban Town. legend. Yeah. 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 I, and like I said, I remember one time um, I, I usually went with I, I never really wanted to go as a ghost. But one time I went as a ghost. And the one time I went as a ghost, we went downtown. Into a, I got hit by an egg. I got hit by like two eggs. It was awful. It was terrible. Oh, and uh, there's a place in our town, Chris, where um, the Burns family lived there. It's right downtown on the oval and it's only a couple of houses away from where I went to kindergarten in this brick school. And they had, it was the old bank and they still have the vault. 
So every year at Halloween, you know, they'd have the cotton on the trees and it would look really cool. And they'd have strobe lights and sound effects and stuff and like the Disney sound effects on the records, you know, and uh, you go in. Those. I miss those. The cassette oh, they were great. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. All the sound effects. And um, uh, sort of like if you listen to the laugh tracks of those 60s TV, there was always that deep throated <laughs> dude who did the chortle. He was yeah, like yeah. a chortler. Like, <laughs> Like that. yeah, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. that guy. I heard of him on Get Smart, and now he's now he's on Hogan's Heroes too. I see. Okay, <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah. But they would always have this situation where they would you'd have to go into the vault, and it would be only lit by candles. And they'd have the door open, and you'd have to go in, and there would be this witch sitting there with her like a, a woman dressed as a witch with the candy, but behind you somebody was waiting so you would have your attention attracted by the witch and then the witch would move and then the guy would come out behind you and it was just like (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and the scariest one for me dude was i might have mentioned this to you before there was another place not too far from there where they had this barn and one year oh yeah uh to get the candy you had to go through like this, like little maze thing they had made with like you know trash bags taped like black spook, and stuff. Spook trail, spook trail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. so at the uh, at the last thing of it was the last open space of the barn was like this twenty foot area where they had trash bags on on the floor, yeah. And they had like this little walking thing next to it, and they had this plank that you had to walk across. Wow. And you had to go very slowly in the dark so you had to place one foot in front of the other over this like thing and so i'm like they're like no but you can take your mom's hand so your mom will guide you as she goes next to you i'm like okay (laughs) so they shut the lights off and you take her hand and you go along in the dark slowly concentrating 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 (sighs) you make it across they turn the lights on and it's not my mom Oh, it's a woman dressed as a witch, and she goes, Yeah, you're like, Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was so scary. It was just like, Why did you do it? Was the, it was the Karen Black, you know, yes. Zeke oh, yeah. doll thing from Trilogy Zuni, of Terror? Zuni yeah, the Zuni doll, yeah. that's what it was like. It was, it was like, like, like <laughs> yes yeah oh man we gotta watch the zuni doll one uh <laughs> let me see uh brian de mccartney says went as a sad wimpy one ply trash bag one year <laughs> and i won first prize <laughs> there's plenty more liberty conspiracy on free talk live coming up we continue on liberty conspiracy on free talk live I went as a McPizza one time. You remember those? Well, um, oh, yes. McDonald's right. had a pizza. I forgot they used to have those things. Yeah, it was gross. They were like that big, weren't they? Yeah, they still sell them in the Midwest. Yeah. Do they really? Yeah, last time wow. I Wow. I wonder if they're, you know, made from that era and they just have them in cold stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. They put them in their McDonald's fallout shelters, McShelter. Yeah, they, they hydrated it like Marty McFly and Yeah. <laughs> Well, you sure can hydrate a pizza. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, so so now over on uh, Rumble, uh, Northern Cardinal says, who hands out pennies? Yeah, I remember sometimes people, um, 
Yeah. Any thoughts on Stephen King shooting John Lennon? Yeah, that's a says whole thing, Hal Nine Thousand Watson. That's a whole thing. Yeah, you, you, how many hours do you have, guard? <laughs> really, there's I've never heard there. that. Yeah, it's a weird one. Yeah. All right, we'll have to we'll have to schedule another time when you can okay. come in. Hal, Hal, you tell us if you, you want to come on sometime. Hal, you can join us. Well, I'll throw it in the in the chat thing. You can come in. That'll be awesome. Um, and did you, Chris, when you were a kid, did you ever have to do one of those things where like? They bring you into a place and you have to put your hand in like the brains and yes. the jello and, and all eyeballs. that stuff. It was eyeballs. Yeah, the eyeballs, oh, you know. Yeah. Right out of the 80s. Yeah, I remember they they also would make us uh, bring around UNICEF too. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yep. Yep. I remember that. That was right. Oh, Harry Hart is in the in the Rockfin chat. Brian Taylor's there. I had a friend that went as a toilet one year. Yeah, I knew someone like that. We didn't really talk to him. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, Real McCoy says, I was a fairy godmother one year at school. Fun costume. Uh, then Brian D. McCartney says, flying purple eaters and love potion number nine. Good stuff. Oh, We're talking purple, about uh, purple people eaters. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many great songs. I, I remember one year I was a DJ just out of college. I was doing that overnight show, Chris. Yeah. At uh at a um yeah, at a uh, F and X, uh, right? F and X. Uh, well it was it was the one that everybody at F and X liked. It was WMDK, <laughs> Manadnock Radio, ninety two point one FM. Oh it yeah. was in yeah, it was in Peterborough, New Hampshire, which is there was a great blues bar that was just around the corner. Yeah. And it was it was awesome. And, uh, you know, that's where I got to play like Stairway to Heaven backwards at three in the morning. And <laughs> and yeah, it was it was really fun. It was cool. Uh, so uh, but did what you was have, interesting, uh, did you have Charles Lockwadera calling? <laughs> no, it didn't have Charles and we didn't okay. have the Fool's Parade. But that was really yeah. funny. I did a takeoff of the Fool's Parade by playing the extended <laughs> remix of Inagata Davida for like a half hour. I just oh, made it up. I was like, it's "Oh, like we're an hour and a half, half right there." <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, and it was, you know, it was it was really weird. It really was like being Wolfman Jack in uh, in yeah, um, man, Wolfman Jack. <laughs> yeah, it was like it was like American Graffiti because you're out in the middle of nowhere, and um, it was it was wild. But uh, for Halloween one year, I got to do this special show. I planned it all out, had to do it live, and everything. I used every possible sound source. We had CD players two turntables and a cassette machine. And I went from one to the other with sound clips on the cassette that I had taken from Kolchak, the night stalker psycho, all these different things. I rented out stuff because at that time there wasn't, you couldn't go digital. I had to go from VHS through the jacks in the back to my tape machine, know the order of stuff. So I would go between tunes playing cuts from like from horror movies, like (laughs) all that stuff. Right. And, uh, they're and it coming was great. to get you, Barbara. They're coming. Yeah, yeah. To you. And that was the thing that, like, uh, Audi at, at Modern Retro Radio yeah. he was like, oh, you got to find that. I was like, I still have it on cassette somewhere. But it was fun. And, you know, all these great songs, like Psycho Killer, Those Are People oh, Who yeah. Died, It's Too Late to Fall in Love with Sharon Tate, um, oh, you know, Godzilla. Who is, that? who is that by? It's Too oh, Late to Fall in Love oh, with yeah, Sharon Oh, yeah. That, that's, that's the Jim Carroll band. And, of oh. course, he wrote Basketball Diaries and oh, stuff. Oh, and, and his. Hey, and his uh, ex-wife, Rosemary Carroll, ended up becoming Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love's entertainment lawyer and was married to Danny Goldberg of Gold Mountain. And she's crucial to the Tom Grant, Kurt Cobain murder theory. Whoa, I didn't yeah. know that. Rosemary wow. Carroll. Rosemary Carroll. 
Yeah, Jim Carroll is ex. Isn't that wow? I didn't know that. And of course, yeah. he came over from Ireland and was oh, like yeah. almost a professional basketball player of all things. Like, yeah. Who would have thought an Irish dude would be like that good? But yeah, that's right. I guess he was pretty darn good. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. So all those songs, like I, you know, I really dug around and found so many cool things. Of course, Bauhaus, Bell Lugosi's Dead, and you know, Scary oh, yeah. Monsters by Bowie and stuff like that, and yeah. you know, that sort of stuff. Cat People, the original version, mm-hmm. with the Charlie Cows, stuff. And and I remember my brother was listening. Monster Mash, yeah, you know, Boris. Yeah, so many, so many good songs. Flying Purple People Eater. Let's check out uh, a little more here. We've got um, uh, Brian's favorite, The Night Stalker. Yes, the Junkyard episode. We're talking the zombie with <sighs> Cab Calloway. Well, uh, not Cab Calloway. Um, Scatman Crothers. Yeah, from the, the Shining. From the Shining. Yep. Yeah. And, and you know you know who was one of the key writers on, on Kolchak? Was the guy who created uh, The Sopranos. Uh, what's that dude's name? David Chase. Yeah, David Chase. He was one of the, that was one of his early, early things was the Night Stalker. And a lot of people don't know this, but part of the reason that the Night Stalker didn't continue was because Darren McGavin, essentially the whole production staff like fell apart and it was up to Darren McGavin. He was acting in many cases, not only acting as the star in the show, but as executive producer for a while, he put his own money into it. He's like and, a showrunner, showrunner. Yeah, he was the showrunner, and yeah. yeah, and he was doing script editing and stuff, and 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 he was playing a character who the character was like ten years younger than he actually was. Like he was in his late fifties playing a guy in his forties, and oh, he was yeah. running around and doing all this. Remember, remember the Paramount Fay one? Paramount yeah. Fay's gonna get you. <laughs> then oh he, man! Then he'd later on go to uh, a different holiday kind of theme with a Christmas story. Oh yeah, boy! I've never seen that. I've only seen clips. It's supposed to be great. I've really got to see it. Uh, I think because Ted Turner uh, replayed it throughout the '90s on TNT and TBS. I think it kind of got this uh, following. It never had that during the first run. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I know they did a sequel last last year. I think. Yeah, I I heard that. Yeah, I heard that. (laughs) Don't bother. Oh, that's too bad. But Kolchak, Kolchak was it i mean there was nothing cooler than cold check and even when they were doing the monster of the week episodes for that one season that they got after the first two tv movies that richard matheson scripted um when they got to do those stories i think in especially because david chase did such a good job and and chris i think i mentioned to you that if you if you watch as you know i know you know part at least part of this like the x-files yeah. Well, so we have the X-Files connection where they the the episode Jose Chung's from Outer Space where they brought Charles Nelson Riley in as the writer Jose Chung. Originally um um they wanted that to be Darren McGavin's Kolchak and he was writing a book and he was going to investigate it and that sort of stuff, but they couldn't do it because the rights to Kolchak were all bound up with Universal TV and it was a real mess. So they yeah. couldn't do it. So they, they ended up doing that instead with Charles Nelson Riley, and it just became a classic, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, so good. So good. And I, I think I told you, I met the bleep dude, Peter, the uh, the guy who played in the, Vancouver. Uh, yeah, yeah, Vancouver, yeah. his wife. Oh, William, William B. Davis. Oh, so well, William B. Davis smoking. was the smoking man, but the yeah. guy the guy who played the, the bleep man, the cop, is like, I got your bleeping aliens in that episode, Jose Chung. Oh, yeah, that's That right. was the husband to a woman named Elizabeth who did casting for The Outer Limits, and she and another woman 
inviting me to this film release party thing. And she introduces me to her husband and she's like, Oh Gardner, I want you to meet Peter. And I'm like, like, I know the guy. I'm like, do I know you? I'd only been in Vancouver like two months. And I was like, do, do we know each other? Like, do you live in Burnaby? Like, how do I, do I know? And then he's like, no, I don't think we've ever met. I was like, wait a minute, you're the bleep guy. And he goes, Yes, I am. He was very happy about being the bleep guy. It was how he just claimed the fame. Yeah, and yeah. in fact, uh, I have to mention Eric Shiner has a connection through family to a person who helped uh, just helped out with the anniversary thirtieth or thirty fifth anniversary or something of the X Files. This big convention, and that guy Pete. They invited him to the convention. They had Crycheck there. They had Skinner there. They had the Smoking Man. They had the they had the Lone Gunman were there. They had virtually everybody. I check, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They had it. Oh, it was, I guess it was just a real success. Everybody loved it. They just had such a good time. And they're thinking about doing uh, another convention in London. And I don't know. It looks like maybe David Duchovny and Jillian Anderson might be able to go to that one. So it could be kind of cool. So well, Gard, anyway, but. Guard, were you ever up for uh, X-Files? I never asked you that. No, I visited the gate. So when I worked at Outer Limits, we were at yeah. this these studios uh, in Burnaby, just on the eastern edge of Vancouver proper, right. along this thing called the Lowheed Highway. And there was a restaurant called Earl's. Like anybody who's been there, and they know the intersection because it's yeah. not even. It was, there was like fields and stuff there too. It wasn't really that built up. Uh, it wasn't super built up, but it was like sub suburban uh, right. as you're heading west to go to Vancouver. And then just a couple blocks in, you were in Vancouver. But um, so there was a really nice restaurant called Earl's. And then uh, just south of that, which, you know, you just look beyond, you could see the studios and the and the um, and the, the sound stages and stuff rising up behind that. It wasn't super huge, but they had a number of sound stages there. And that was the bridge studios. And yeah. then. If you, yeah, if you went, just took a couple corners and you went over a bridge, you'd go over the, uh, over the inlet towards the mountains where Lynn Canyon was and stuff like that. A lot of beautiful mountains and skiing yeah. are up, up there, right down there near the, uh, waters level was another studio. And that's where X-Files where most of their sets were located. And then when they, they, for their exteriors, they shot a lot up in this place called Lynn Canyon. And that's very interesting because Lynn Canyon, when I went up there, I used to go hiking up there. It wasn't really like hiking. I and mean, they had trails and stuff. You just walk through the trails yeah. like like around my house. And I guess they call it hiking. I just go they call it going in the woods, you know, just walking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're just in the woods. Right. So but um, they it was really cool because they had this um, little inlet where they had glacial water that came down this river. And it was this amazing emerald green. It was wild. Wow. It was like green jello. And yeah. And when I, it was the coldest water I've ever felt. Like I put my legs in it and it was like steel fingers just wrapping around my legs. It was so <laughs> wild. Wow. And it wasn't like I was going to go swimming, but I just, I sat on a rock out there yeah. and I was like, whoa. And um, so, but what was weird was they had cougar all over the place there. And uh, you had to carry a cowbell with you. You know, you felt like you were in blue oyster cult carrying a yeah, cowbell yeah. around uh, because you had to like, not all the time, but when there was a cougar alert, you know, they, they're like, okay, well, if you want to go out there, you better bring the cowbell with you. And you'd, you'd like bang the cowbell every once in a while to keep the cougars away. And, um, Oh, so that I was would, like, that really would scare them off. I know maybe it was like maybe. the mask with the pandemic, you know, yeah, so -called yeah. pandemic. Okay. good point. Good point. Yeah. I don't know, man, you know, but it was, it was, it was weird because you'd be walking around 
And after that, by the time I finished at, at Outer Limits, and uh, by that time, immediately I could tell if I was watching a show, I was like, oh, that was shot in Vancouver. Like yeah. I could tell because the houses had the drivers have certain lips and there's certain design of the road of the of the houses and stuff like that. And um, I'll give you another example. Here's a weird one. So, you know, uh, two things. First, the end of Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah. Genius. OK, so first thing I'll tell you is uh, I think I'm going to mention to you, I found out I always wanted to figure out where Ape City was located. Yeah. yeah. And. I figured it out, despite the fact that they shot Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and all those things out in Studio City uh, where they had built some stuff. And you could tell those buildings are there. Yeah. You couldn't really tell coming from the East Coast if you didn't know it. It was just this futuristic city. Right. Yeah. So that was and, you know, the first movie, the ending and spoilers for anybody. It ends in New York. Yep. Of course. So I used to try to backtrack because I was like, okay, they landed in a <laughs> desert, you know, in a, in a lake. And then they went north, northwest through the desert for X number of days. They had these provisions. So that would bring them up towards here. Yeah. And I found out it's Rod Serling's hometown of Binghamton. It's oh, Binghamton, wow. New York. That's where he made Ape City. And one of the fascinating things is, you know, in Planet of the Apes, when they find the um they find the waterfall they discover water and they're like woo and they jump in the water right and then the the mute humans steal their clothes there's a waterfall in ithaca wow and it's it's huge it's just uh you go a little west of ithaca college where rod serling taught and you take a quick turn and you go up this little road and it's the most amazing stone basin the waterfall's got to be like 200 feet it's just unbelievable but i think that was the inspiration for that smaller waterfall that they shot where, you know, they go swimming yeah, yeah, and they find that water. So the whole area, that's Ape City. And what's curious, there are a couple things. In the remake movies that they did with Planet of the Apes, in the first movie, you'll notice that the character that uh, James Franco plays is named Rodman. His last name is Rodman. Yeah. yeah. And his wife, his girlfriend is Caroline, right? Well, if you take the last three letters off of both of those names, you get Rod and Carol. Rod Serling's wife was named Carol. Carol, yeah, and his his yep. daughter and is it, Anne. Yep, yeah. yep, and it's amazing people, amazing, amazing people. Jody uh, befriended me over on Facebook. She's a super nice, and um, so that was very interesting. And then the other thing about it is that. When you look at the film Planet of the Apes, and I'm going to draw this into Tolkien in just a minute, but if you look at the film Planet of the Apes, you know, that ending is so iconic. But the only way it could have happened is if he was on the East Coast going north. So they obviously, when they had their shootout with the apes, then he goes up because the sun is behind him as he's going, right? So then as he gets there, you see those spikes and then they reverse angles and you see what he's looking at. Right. The only way that they made that work was by shooting it at the appropriate time with the sunlight to make you understand that he had been traveling North when in fact on that beach, yeah, that beach has been used for a bunch of different things. They, they did monkeys episodes there, that beach, that cliff that is behind the statue 
that that you see where they did the matte painting of the statue and there's a cliff behind the statue and you look like you're looking north at the statue yeah that cliff actually you're facing south and you're on the west coast so the 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 director knew that that this was the east coast and he knew he had to shoot it in such a way that the, you wouldn't see the shadows because the shadows would throw you off and you're <laughs> thinking well because you know the statue the statue yeah. of liberty faces south right that's right yeah right um so and there's a whole other story about rod serling's inspiration for that statue scene that i might have mentioned to you which was a magazine cover of amazing stories yeah. from that month when he changed it from an ape great from a human graveyard to the statue yeah. and that there was a cover with a painting of the statue of liberty from amazing stories a si totally different science fiction story was featured in that magazine the month that he changed the script for planet of the apes in 1963 oh yeah yeah so clearly he was inspired by that and that's how he changed it but the other thing i want to mention is if you look at Tol the tolkien movies that uh peter jackson did oh yeah so you know all you know how how amazing that was and they shot it in new zealand on the other side of the planet right yep so this is one of the things that i got and the only reason i got it and like if you're talking about locations and stuff like that um like vancouver and things like that to draw it back to x files and you know tell you know, being able to tell it's vancouver and stuff like right. that is so when i went to australia i got all mixed up because when you're looking at the sun here in the northern hemisphere you're generally facing south right so east is that way and west is that way right yeah so that's south west east north right <laughs> but yeah. in australia i was always backwards because wow. when you're seeing the sun in australia that's north right so east is that way and west is that way yeah. And it's it's really disorienting. Like I would go running and I would I would kind of get lost. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I would have to. Yeah, it was really weird. Wow. Well, if you watch, remember the the Narnia films? They did those couple Narnia films, but the kids yeah. started to get too old. What's interesting is they shot those in New Zealand too, in a lot of the same locations as the Tolkien films. Oh. And as you know, in the Narnia films, the witch is coming from the north, coming down. Right. Right. She's got the ice and all this stuff. She's coming from the north, right? They didn't do it right. The shadows are wrong. The shadows yes. are backwards. Yeah, right. the shadows, they had to, they should have flipped it. Anybody watches the movies, you can tell that they shot it in the southern hemisphere because it's not, they didn't think of where the shadows were going to be that right. the, the enemy was coming from the north. <laughs> yeah, it's no, it's wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy when you think of these things and stuff. It's it's really fascinating. But anyway, oh, and just Chris, just to let you know, um, yeah. so you you know a ton about alien aliens. You know the whole thing with aliens, Blade Runner. You know, oh yeah. And you're probably aware. And I don't know if we spoke. I think we might have spoken about this. But so in the DVD or Blu-ray or something for, um, I think it's Aliens. They mentioned the the Watani Corporation guy, right? Oh, uh, you, you, Bishop. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Waylon, 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 yeah, yeah. And yeah. there were two guys and stuff like that. Well, in the bio for Wayland, the Wayland Corporation, and he is later in Prometheus and stuff like that, yeah. right? Yep. That Wayland guy in the bio on the DVD, uh, you probably know about this. Um, um, Ridley Scott 
or whoever was behind the DVD version of it, yeah. they were able to put into it that he was an apprentice to Tyrell of the <laughs> Tyrell Corporation from Blade I know. Runner. Yeah. I... Yeah. And what's wild, I might have mentioned this to you. I think I called up the photo or something like that. But Kolchak has a story called Mr. Ring, R-I-N-G. Yeah. And it's about yeah. the series of murders of these military people out west. And they're all getting like just ripped to shreds. Yeah. And so Kolchak investigates and he discovers it's a robot. It's an android. Right. And the woman who programmed him started to give him ethics and philosophy. And he was getting confused because he was programmed to be a killing machine. <laughs> That's right. And so he turns on the people who were making him a killing machine and starts to kill them. Right. And the place where they developed him, and you can see it as Kolchak pulls in with his yellow Mustang, <laughs> is the Tyrell Institute. That's right. So I looked in it because I was like, well, maybe David Chase wrote that script. I don't think he did. Right. And I thought maybe David Chase was friends with the Peoples. You know, it was a, 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 a husband and wife team who wrote most of the script for Blade Runner, I think. Yeah, they would later on go on to re replace Sam Hamm on uh, Tim Burton's Batman 2 that became Batman Returns. That's right. Yeah, That's Jan right. I think it, yep. they were Janet and something people. Yeah. Janet was people, the woman. I think it was. David people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And they did a bunch of TV work, too. Yeah. And I think they were involved with uh, uh, Blade Runner 2049, which is phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I think he was like a story advisor for it or something to keep the continuity. Um they were but, a married screenwriting team for a long time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great, great stuff. So I just think it's so cool. You know, again, it's fantasy. It's escapism. I was talking with David about this, David Knight, about how, you know, as you start to look at it as a profession, you realize what's yeah. important in life is family and your associations with friends. All the rest of it passes. But there is something to the lessons that we can get out of these things. And I think yeah. looking at the efforts of some of these writers or the producers, or even some of the really good actors who went out of their way. We'll be back with more Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. We return with the final segment of Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. Thanks very much for listening, everybody, and thank you for your positive words after we joined you last week on Free Talk Live. We're going to join our guest, Chris Graves, in just a moment, and I want to let you know that this hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash, Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Tired of the ever-inflating U.S. dollar? You can live your life on Dash instead with some handy websites. BitRefill.com has been accepting Dash for years and has a ton of big-name retailers and brands, including grocers, gas stations, phone refills, Amazon, and even prepaid MasterCards. Plus, many of their gift cards are available at a discount. What about paying your bills? Spritz.Finance can do that and... They can send dollars to your bank account in case you still need those for some reason. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Thanks to Dash, D-A-O, for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org 
to learn about Dash. Dash dash.org. And now our final segment for Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live with our guest known as the Mastodon of Research. You can find him on Rumble at Digging Chris Graves as we round up our conversation about mysteries, entertainment, legends, and lore. Whether it's a musician or it's a carpenter or whatever, you know, they really put their heart and soul into something. Uh, And that's what I get out of Darren McGavin's work for Night Stalker. Like he was the pillar on that show, you know? He's a great actor, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if I told you, he lived, we lived in Westport, Connecticut, and he lived there too. And I guess he knew my father. And um, my dad said that they were at a party one time and he was very upset. He he was not a fan of government, uh, which you can tell from the Night Stalker. Yeah, and, yeah, and um, and uh, he was really upset because he had gone to do an expansion on his porch, and they the zoning people wouldn't let him do it, or they were gonna like punish him for having done it without permission or some something. We had a similar own, thing in my on town. his own property. Yeah, oh. on his own property. <laughs> He's like, wow, you know, so it was pretty interesting. And Paul Newman and uh, Linda Blair lived in Westport, too. And my sister and my brother were talking about uh, Paul Newman's kids. I think my sister actually uh, went to their house a couple times. Yeah, Paul Newman had like a barn where uh, people that would do work for his charity. Yeah. They'd usually get an invite to go and uh, talk with Paul in his barn. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I guess he was a super nice guy. They just said he was a real By all accounts, yeah. Great yeah. Actor. Yeah. Oh, man. I wish I could have been on the racing teams, you know, working on those yeah. engines and stuff. That would have been fun. But look, man, I know it's nine o'clock. We've been rolling and, and you've been around for a long time, dude. And I know you you got so many things. You probably haven't even eaten dinner yet. Uh, uh, let me get your your favorite candy, man. What was the favorite candy? Candy corn. Can't go wrong. Candy, candy corn. Can't go wrong. Would you put it on ice cream, too? Would that be a good combo sometimes? You know what? I never thought to do that, but uh, I... I wouldn't uh I wouldn't throw it away. Oh, so so good. So good. <laughs> and scariest movie for you? Um Jaws? <laughs> well, I'd probably say uh probably the Joy Luck Club. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Sister Act 2 back in the habit. There <laughs> well, for me, I saw Jaws, I think I was 11 and it Jaws is up out. there. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was a good one. And Duel on TV. Oh, original. yeah. And I you mentioned that? Trilogy. You me- yeah, yeah, you mentioned Trilogy. Trilogy of Terror was king, god, epic, super scary. I'll tell <laughs> you this, Guard. The one, that, the one that turned my life around, and I'd say for the better in terms of wanting to be a filmmaker or a storyteller or even yeah. an actor, was Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. I have to see that. I really, and you mentioned that it's got all these depth and levels to it that I It's got know. all kinds of subtext and it's a, just a good spooky campfire story at its heart. You know, yeah. a, guy, a guy that can get you in your dreams, everyone like the ocean guard, like in Jaws, yeah. everyone's got to sleep. So yeah. it's a universal concept. Wes Craven yep. was onto something there. Oh, man. And, you know, I'll mention again. Excuse me, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978. Oh, yeah. The first was great, too. Yeah. And and that, that later one that they did on the Army base, that was good, yeah. too. 
That was there's a good a, one. There's a few iterations of that. Yeah. Yeah, they did four, and then the last one was the woman, the Aussie girl, who is whose father was like involved with some weird stuff. Uh, what's her name? She's married to the rocker and was formerly oh, Nicole, married to Tom Nicole, Nicole Kidman. Kidman. Yeah, yeah, I didn't watch that one. I didn't. Yeah. You know, but and then Wicker Man, I enjoyed. Um, 1973. Yeah. yeah, and did you ever hear the story Christopher Lee mentioned that there's a bunch of Wicker Man stuff that that got lost, and it's probably under one of the M, you know, four or M3s or something like that. I have heard that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Amazing stuff, and of course, uh, you know, so many of the Hammer Horror films, the Quatermass films, amazing stories. Oh, Al- are- oh you talking about Alan Quatermass? Oh, oh, so good. Not not Alan. Not Alan. Uh, uh, Quarterman or whatever from the Quarter H. Ryder Haggard, yeah. uh, Alan well, Quartermain. I'm getting it all um, mixed up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um, no, these were the Quatermass stories. They had Quatermass in the pit, Quatermass experiment, yeah. and another one. And they were they were Hammer, yeah. and uh, they were super cool. They were really really cool. Nigel Neal was the writer. Yes. And if you're familiar with the BBC version of 1984 with Peter Cushing, that's available free on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, Nigel Neal was, I think, the writer. I don't know if he directed that, but uh, he was the scriptwriter for that adaptation of 1984. Very good adaptation. Na- Nigel Neal uh, and John Carpenter, the filmmaker John Carpenter, had like this huge like uh, brawl. Because John Carpenter, want, had being the executive producer of Halloween 3... Yeah, actually contracted uh, uh, Nigel to write uh, the script, the screenplay, because uh, John and Deborah Hill, they both didn't want to write the third one because they had yeah. written the first two. Yeah, and there was this like kind of maybe not legendary because only fanatics like myself really know about it. But they had like this huge like, like Nigel apparently was a very uh, well by what John Carpenter says was kind of a kind of a grumpy individual. Um, Interesting, for the most part, but uh, yeah, I yeah. love both their work, so it's weird seeing those forces collide, you know. Oh man, that's it's. I gotta go back, you know. I have not taken a lot of time. I just started watching uh, another rerun from Hawaii Five O, and there's there's another show where Jack Lord ended up Lord. shouldering the last few years of that show, just basically on his own, keeping it yeah. going. And, and what a great job he did, you know. I mean. <sighs> Some of these people, they just the the work that they would do and the exactitude. You look at Tom Baker from Doctor Who. He knew every nuance of the scripts and he was very, very exacting on the shows that, you know, the doctor would only do this or only do that. And, and, you know, ever since then, the actors are like, well, you know, he was right. He was absolutely right. Philip Hinchcliffe and those writers, Terry Nation, Terrence Dix, Robert Holmes, they were just, you know, the golden age. Barry Letts during John Pertwee's era and John Pertwee, you know, amazing, amazing people all involved in that era of Doctor Who. Great stuff. You know who loved uh, Jack Lord? The late uh, singer for Alice in Chains, Lane Staley. Really? liked him because, uh, you know, when the musicians would um, choose like a name for their publishing and everything? Yeah. Usually you'd see it in the liner notes. Well, uh, Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell, for the most part, would write most of Alice and Change's music together. Or sometimes Jerry would write more of the musical stuff. But every time I would see uh, Lane Staley's uh, publishing uh, company name, like in the liner yeah. notes, it was, yeah, Jack, yeah. it was Jack Lord Music. I always got a kick out of that. Cause, uh, That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. And, you know, again, it is weird because... Yeah. 
you know, these people receive so much of our attention and, yeah. and it, it is weird. You know, the guy who's out there, you know, raising turkeys for Thanksgiving might get some, you know, local familiarity with people and stuff like that. So I try to keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, but there's just there's something very enthralling and exciting and, and fun about these stories, especially if the stories pack a surprise they entertain yep. you and they can give you value, you know, it's twilight zone right there. Yeah. Head of the time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Chris, thank you. Uh, okay. Tom is in the house. He says, thanks garden. Chris for the cool show. God bless. Stay safe out there and enjoy the rest of your night. Brian Deb says watched wicker man. Yeah. The original yeah. is very cool. And final thing. Did you get to see, Nicholas Cage's version. Of I was going to say, yeah, and James. Not Hanks. not Wicker, not Wicker Man though. Oh, not Wicker oh Man. Okay. Yeah, I know people. Oh, the bees! I um, saw that one. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen it, but he did a version of Color Out of Space. That I uh, thought would make for a great motion picture a while ago, mm -hmm. and they went and made it. And I still need to check it out. I think it came, it was released during the pandemic, so it wasn't yeah. in theaters. Yeah. But some trusted friends of mine, um, they weren't too enthused by it. But I don't you know, know what to make of that. I'll, I'll say this. Um, if you if you listen to Tales to Terrify, if you go yeah. to Tales to Terrify, just look up Color Out of Space, Tales to Terrify. Okay. There was the host of Tales to Terrify, um, uh, Tony was his yeah. name. He passed away. Um, he did a version just reading the story yeah. and it is superb. Well, for those out there that are not familiar with what he, what guards were uh, talking about, it's a great, one of HP Lovecraft's greatest stories, in my opinion. And the concept is something that I've been fascinated with for, I don't know, forever. The idea of what would happen if all of a sudden you saw a, a brand new color, and yeah. your eye could actually see it. And what would that do? And would it could it be extraterrestrial in nature? Right. Not to give anything away, but right. could it be yeah. out of this world, so to speak? Yeah. Am yeah, I giving yeah, you justice yeah. with that? Oh yeah, you okay. it's 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 great. And it's a color you can't describe, you know, in yes. that Lovecraftian, yes. you know, Cthulhu-esque sort of thing. That's right. And it you you nailed it. You nailed it. And What's really interesting is, okay, uh -huh. so you know how Lovecraft, we're coming right back to Salem. Yeah. Lovecraft's Arkham. Danvers, Danvers Hospital, State Hospital was. Yes. Was, yeah. And and Arkham is loosely based on Salem in that area, Peabody, Salem, but mostly Salem. Yeah. And what's really interesting is, as you know, Arkham is the it's only Batman. place where the Marvel and DC universes cross. Okay, now you're telling me something that I don't know at all, and uh, you're blowing my mind right now because I just know it as uh, the number one place for all of my favorite heroes, villains, Batman, yep. Arkham yep. Asylum. Now, no, how they, does yeah. Marvel cross? Oh, Marvel! Marvel has an Arkham Asylum. They've got. They both have Arkham Asylum. That's where there's a crossover. Really? They both have an Arkham Asylum, and in fact. Um, uh cletus cassidy is i believe that's where cletus gets uh you know uh you're talking, carnage? You're talking about carnage cletus cassidy yeah, carnage exactly okay. right. that's where cletus cassidy i believe it's he becomes infected by the symbiote, the symbiote, that's the symbiote venom. Uh, yeah venom is, yeah uh, because because uh what's his what's his name who who is venom Eddie is Brock. in there 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's put in there for a little while, and he's in a cell like next to Cletus Cassidy, who's a much crazier homicidal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and there it's in Arkham Asylum. That is Arkham uh, Marvel. Yeah. I got to th- I got to turn in my geek card because <laughs> I've never heard of Marvel. Have I'm not saying you're wrong, but I've never heard them. The Marvel yeah, Universe. Yeah, yeah, Arkham. yeah. In fact, I think I don't know if it's when they created Carnage, but it's close to it. Right. There's there's a uh, there's a Marvel graphic novel that combines most of the those issues where they have it, oh, it, it like happened an, like an omnibus kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's okay. like an oversized paperback, yeah. and um, and it's great. And uh, it happened in the '90s, just around the time that Siamese Dream was released by Smashing Pumpkins, Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. and in the blocks. Cletus Cassidy is screaming, let me out, let me out. And they do it, let me out. And it goes, and you're like, oh man, this has got to be a reference to Smashing Pumpkins. It's got to be, right? And they would be on the Batman and Robin soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super cool. So, uh, yeah, but but what's interesting is bringing back to Colorado Space. Yeah. The main character in Colorado Space, his last name is Gardner. Oh. So, yeah, Lovecraft knew enough to know that the Gardner family was very, you know, he might not have known that they helped found Salem, but he knew that the Gardner family was very big in Salem. So Lovecraft used the Gardner last name as the main character for the family that owns the farm that gets this color on it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, check it out if you get a chance. I'll see if I can find the link for you, Chris. Yeah. I'll, I'll post it on Twitter too for the audience. It's a fantastic reading. And wow. by the way, the reading done by this this former host of uh, Centoro was his name. He passed away uh, from cancer. But Tales to Terrify, they got tons of great, great stories. Joe Lansdale, God of the Razor is in there. Oh, I interviewed him too. Yeah. Yes, that was a fantastic. Joe's a friend of mine. He's such a good guy. Yeah, uh, he's such, yeah, he's a good his, dude. His daughter is yep. very talented too. Oh yeah, yeah, amazing. And uh, yeah. yeah, she's she's great country singer. And yeah. um, so yeah, so um, so uh, Tales to Ter- I derailed. It. We're all over the place. No, no, no. But but yeah. So uh, it's very interesting because let me see if I can call it the Tales to Terrify website. Yeah. I'll see if I can call it up for you. And there's one other thing. There's a story called triumph by a guy who came over from croatia yeah uh his name is damir salkovic and oh, it's like an alternate world war ii history thing of the nazis and their weird occult searches for talismans and stuff oh like the real the real society yeah thing? yeah the v- total real stuff wow. exactly yeah. and yep yep like that stuff that sapir wrote about and um yeah. so here's the tales to terrify website and That's they've cool. got all sorts of stuff in there I mean, just amazing stories. So good. And if you do a search for Dalmer, I'll, I'll post that one on Twitter yeah. too. But if you do a search, um, it's uh, Tony, I think it's Tony Santoro was his name. He passed away. But what's curious about it, Chris, again, bringing it back home. Yeah. Santoro, who was the original host of Tales to Terrify, I found out that he was living out somewhere in like the Midwest or whatever when he was doing the show or maybe in Connecticut or something. I can't remember. Not the same thing, but um, I found out that he actually lived where I went to high school in Milford, New Hampshire. And he was the director of numerous plays at a place called the American Stage Festival, where during the summertime, it was a summer stock theater thing 
yeah. a lot of the New York Broadway and off-Broadway actors would come up to do summer stock there. I saw Gaslight there, and I think he directed it when I was a kid. <sighs> wow. Isn't that wild? It is, yeah. Small world. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what the heck, man? Like we, I, I contacted him because I wanted to get in touch with uh, Dalmir Salkovic. And he wrote back. He was so nice. Yeah. He contacted Dalmir. Dalmir contacted me, sent me a PDF of the story. And, and he's like, oh, it's, you know, uh, I see on your thing you're in your Amherst, New Hampshire. I, I worked at the American States Festival in Milford. I was a director there. I'm like, whoa, man. <laughs> Wow. It was yeah, super, super cool. So anyway, yeah, I'll send you the links, dude. Okay, and yeah. um thank you. Oh, and we have uh, we have some donations over at Rockfin. Uh so I want to um just get in there because I probably missed a bunch of things. And we gotta start doing this on on YouTube, man. Uh, yeah. Audi, Audi tip twenty says cops are low IQ order followers who scoff at the constitution from earlier in the program. Yep. From Ian Freeman to his uh to this mystic shop owner. Yes, Audi. Bang, bang on, man. Yeah. Andromeda One. Oh, there's a great movie, The Andromeda Strain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah oh. man. That's so intense at the end. Uh, I saw the cult Saturday night at the Palms Hotel here in Vegas. They rocked. Dude, <laughs> I hope they did. I hope they did the witch. Dude, yes. Um I only saw Nichols. them I only saw them once and it was at River Rave at Foxborough Stadium in like two thousand two or something. I hope it was it good. Yeah, they were pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're they're good, man. And that whole thing, Ian Asbury connecting with the Native American influence when he was yeah. in school because he felt like an outcast because he came from England, he had the accent in Canada, so he was yeah. sort of pushed away. He became yeah. friends with a lot of the Indian kids. That's way cool. That's that so cool. cool. Uh, MJ Nichols, MJ, thanks for putting the show together tonight, guard, and for getting CG back on. Can't think of better Halloween mind meld. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, Patrick S. tipped, I like chicken. Uh, and then there's Max B. Did Bizarro Guard send, uh, get sent on a, a did, you, did we send Bizarro Guard on a candy run? Yeah, he'll have to come back. That'll be cool. Yeah. And, um, uh, Real McCoy's uh, sent a tip as well. You guys are all amazing. And uh, so final thoughts on the Rockfin chat for final thoughts on candy and stuff like that. And then, Chris, I better let you go. Also at Rumble, same thing. We get Risha M saying, awesome show. Thanks, Chris. That was awesome. Chris Graves, everybody. Get over to Rumble. Hit that like. Hit the follow. Spread the shows that are out there, especially that Jack the Ripper show. And by the way, talking about Jack. Um, yeah. Jack, the uh, podcaster, um, who recently oh, had Jack Allen. He had a Jack child. Allen. God yeah. bless Jack Allen and his his wife. Their baby is doing great. I hear. Yeah, and he just did a, a pod about a book that he read about Aleister Crowley. It was fascinating. He did. I was watching some of that. Yeah, no, I've had him on digging uh, for a, a couple of times, and he he was gracious enough to have me on uh, Kojak. That's oh. the initials for a conspiracy or just a coincidence. Yes, yes, I remember yeah. that. It was amazing. You guys, we got to do more of this. This is so good. Uh, right. Northern Cardinal says uh, uh, says good night to some people. Spooktacular show, boys. Thanks for being our guest tonight, Chris Ghostly Graves. <laughs> yeah. He's wish my camera was working. <laughs> Chris, I, I, I got to tell you, you know, you've been going through so much stuff. Yeah. And don't ever, ever forget the power that you represent. And, uh, you know, I know when you're by yourself and you don't feel good 
And yeah. I, you know, saying this publicly is, is, is important. I think for a number of other people, you're showing great power and thanks exactly. man, because you've done great stuff for people you never even are going to meet. So Thank kudos, you. man. And we're going to continue you. our tales to terrify in the future. And you're going to be in an anthology that Liberty Conspiracy Publishing puts out. I know. Oh, thank you. I remember you got that. it. Oh, dude, it's going to be great. So, all right, folks, we're going to say farewell. Chris Graves is going to check out. Chris, final thoughts. Where can they find your stuff? I'll start calling things up on the web here. Well, um, I'll just I'll make a nation short. Um, I had to uh, re I re I did a um, a rumble page that uh, guard was uh, nice enough to put up on the screen. Um, yeah, that's under the page uh, digging Chris Graves. Um, that has the show with Peter as well, which is don't take our word for it. Which we're gonna we're gonna have. Um, I'm not sure you're familiar with an author by the name of um, uh, Joseph Farrell. Have you ever heard of Joseph Farrell? He uh, he does a bunch of work on like 9-11 and JFK and pyramids. Uh, that's, and, yeah, I think that's maybe where I've heard. I don't know him. Yeah, he's been on I Protest with Donald uh, recently. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yep. him and uh, him and Peter are, are pretty tight when it comes to uh, researching stuff back and forth. So I'd like to talk to him uh, on our Don't Take Our Word For It show about not, some of his 9-11 work that he's, he's done. But other than that, I'm just trying Actually, the moment I uh, part ways with you, Guard, I'm going to have Franco Matei, our good friend, uh, and Mr. Jason Barker, um, if I can get this camera to work, we're going to try to do another test live stream of my uh, StreamYard. Because. Oh, nice. So we're well, going to do, do that, and that'll go right to the Digging uh, Chris Graves Rumble page. Hopefully I set it up right, and okay. to my Twitter feed. And uh, Twitter feed, I guess, is the most important. And you have it right there. Thank you, sir. Okay. There you so go, man. That, yeah, yep. that's it. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so and people can start watching that then. If uh, Will it go yeah. out or will it be private? It'll go out? Oh, it'll go out live. Okay. Everything will be okay. live stream from here on. All right. I have all the all of the content I was able to save or back up. Um, I've been uploading to this page on Rumble. So, you are the Rumble fish, right there, man. Rumble fish, Francis Ford Coppola, nineteen what, 82? Yeah, man. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. Oh. Chris, thank you. I've kept you so much longer than I ever. No, I love. I love. I love the heck out of this, man. Uh, uh, I love you, man. You're just I the love man, you too, brother. Yeah, you're awesome. Um, so, good vibes. Lots of prayers for you. And, Thank you. Um, you I will as well. Be, yeah, you got it. While I put on my dinner, I'll be yeah. checking things out. I hope people go to its. Your Twitter handle is at Seagraves Mass Guy. Yeah. At Seagraves Mass Guy for people listening after the fact. And yeah. if you're listening later on the uh, Free Talk Live uh, broadcasts on Friday. Yeah. And also. Uh, we've got your rumble is digging Chris Graves, right? Yeah, that's the official channel. Yeah, I'm not sure why the the link has it as the weird numbers and all that. I don't know, but all yeah, right. it's digging Chris Graves. You just type it in there. All right, buddy. Thanks for listening to Liberty Conspiracy on Free Talk Live. This is Mark Edge with Free Talk Live. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com is one of the best real estate agents I've ever worked with. I've been through about two dozen real estate transactions in my life, and I feel like I know what I'm doing, but there's always the things that you don't know that you don't know. Mark Warden with PorcupineRealEstate.com found a problem with the house that I was buying that ultimately saved me $65,000. 
He's a consummate professional, holds his people to his own high standards, and I would unequivocally recommend him for any real estate purchase in New Hampshire. Don't sell yourself short. Contact PorcupineRealEstate.com.